I have sunk like 200 hours into Xenoblade Chronicles 2 at oh, the time of wow. speaking, so really? that's, that's a good fun time. I see that it seems to have resonated with you quite a It has, and I don't exactly know why, but I think it was kind of because... I I mean I spent like 400 hours on Breath of the Wild because okay. I got I got my Switch originally to play Breath of the Wild because I was really excited about it and last year I was having surgery and I was like well I'm going to have like nothing to do for three weeks while I'm signed off work having you know rest and gentle walks around the park and stuff like that yeah so I was like so I'm going to I'm going to get the new Zelda and that's going to keep me occupied because basically every time there's a Zelda game it kind of becomes my life for you know the foreseeable future so yeah. I was like okay this is my plan so I got it and uh, that was great. Um, and I was initially kind of like, okay, so I'm going to save this for my recovery and I'm not going to break into it until like I'm out of hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, I was so excited about it that I caved in and started playing it a week before. Uh-huh. Yeah. But then it was kind of, once I realized how huge it was, I was like, actually, I don't think I needed to worry about using this all up before I had any time to play it because <laughs> there is so much of this game. Uh, so I was kind of doing the whole sort of Great Plateau stuff mm-hmm. and you start off and you find the shrines and stuff like this. And that was when I realized that sort of that was about the size of the entire overworld in like Ocarina of Time. And yeah, that right. was just like the training area before you get <laughs> out. And I was just kind of like, okay, so this is massive. So I just kind of like sunk all of my time into that for basically two weeks solid and Uh it kind of became my sort of substitute for spending more time outside but then once I kind of felt more energetic and I got up and about it would be like I'd leave the house and I was staying with my mum and dad and they live next door to a park and like every time I went for a walk like I'd just see a plant or something like that and I'd go oh my god I must add it to my inventory so I can upgrade (laughs) my armour set and then I was like wait no I I don't this is real life and I just kind of I really internalised it Yeah. Uh, so I spent a really long time doing that and I was like now I'm going to find every side quest and I'm going to find every Korok seed and I'm just going to do like literally everything that there is in this huge ridiculous game mm-hmm. um, and I think a few months ago I finally completed the main quest and it had been on the go for like months by this point and even if I kind of wasn't specifically doing any of the quests I would just kind of wander around and look at stuff because the whole world looks so great Heck yeah yeah, and I would just be kind of walking around going like oh man the texture on this water is amazing so it's just a really nice kind of world to inhabit for a little while and I think when I kind of started running out of large plot for that, I was kind of going, oh, I, I really need another kind of large overarching RPG that I can just kind of sink many hours of my life into. Mm. So I think Xenoblade 2 very much kind of came along at the right time for me because I was like, oh no, but like, what, what am I going to do in terms of large quests once mm. I finish all of the main quests in Breath of the Wild? Uh, They're kind of intimidatingly big. They um, are. Both of those games are. So I haven't spent as much time with them as I would have liked to. Yeah. Um, just because I'm short on time. Um, Breath of the Wild, I got that when it came out. And then, like, the week after it came out, I had to jump into Persona 5. And yes. do that for review and spend, like, 120 hours on that. Yeah, so that like, is, I gather, also very large. Slowly but surely, like, edging my way back into into both of those open worlds. Yes. But and I, I think it helps that, kind of, when I first got Breath of the Wilds, there weren't a lot of other games of that size out because like Super Mario Odyssey hadn't come out yet mm-hmm. um, and I don't think Assembly 2 was out at that stage either um, so it was kind of like you had that and you had Mario Kart 8 and Splatoon 2 so those mm-hmm. are very much by kind of I'm just going to pick these up and play them when I feel like kind of doing something competitive in sort of short 15 minute bursts Yeah, but I kind of I realised that actually I got really kind of into the whole sort of open world large massive game that you just play for many hours at a time kind Mm -hmm. of thing because i think also 
that's very much the kind of game that I grew up with to an extent because I, I think I have a theory that sort of everybody's game preferences are kind of based on what the first games they play when they're quite small are mm-hmm. and I very much kind of like the first console I got was a Nintendo 64 and I was just okay. like this is mind-blowingly amazing it's Mario in 3D I've never seen anything like this <laughs> uh, so then you had like Super Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time and sort of all of the huge just kind of I'm dropping you into a large world and you're just going to explore now mm. and uh, like the Rayman there was a Rayman one mm-hmm. which was like the most long, non-linear Rayman game that I'd ever seen so I guess like I kind of got really into just sort of being dropped into large intimidating worlds and just being told like okay now you have to like find your way around mm-hmm. um, and then they kind of stopped doing such big open world games I think for a while because they kind of like I guess fell out of fashion a bit I think until Skyrim happened they got a little grey they I did feel. they got a little grey and kind of true crimey yeah um, and the, like literally colour palette grey yeah as well yeah um, so yeah and then Skyrim happened and then everybody was like wow actually having a giant world map is like a really good thing like I think it was that and GTA whatever the newest GTA is I lost track of the numbers is it 5? I, I think, think 5 is the latest one yeah, yeah the, the huge one mm-hmm. and I was like yes people are starting to make like incredibly self-indulgent large overworld maps again I'm so excited about <laughs> this I mean I'm I'm all for that as well but um the large open world map games for a while they kind of I don't know like I'm thinking about how like they kind of went the way of things like Far Cry and Mm. other and like Just Cause and it was all about I don't know it felt a little imperialist yeah I need like a whole bunch of like color and fantasy and like big wide open world to have a really good time with it definitely and I think that was one of the things that I really loved about Breath of the Wild was it was like I do the first like the first main kind of dungeon bit and it was like okay so now I'm going to like the river region and I'm going to hang out with the Zoras and it's all going to be very kind of aquatic and they've got all their kind of shiny kind of cultural monuments and stuff like that and then the next thing you do is like I went to like the desert to the Gerudo town and everything about it looked completely different Mm, and I was like visually this looks like a completely different game it's so rare that you get so many biomes in one giant map yeah exactly you had all of these kind of little micro civilizations um, at various kind of bits of the world so like it never felt like you were just kind of hacking away at a landscape which was large but samey. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just got really into sort of stuff like finding good spots for like catching fish and shit like that. And I just kind of like, it felt like a realistic region that had variation within itself rather than just kind of this world is large, but everything is just like a cliff that looks exactly like another cliff. Uh-huh. So that was yeah. great. And I just like got really into that. I am all for fishing games yes in my, in my in my game no matter what game it is i will spend a whole bunch of time fishing yes i should introduce us and then we can jump right back into okay cool this is really exciting
and thank you for tuning in to episode 6 of Misspent Youth, a podcast on video games, why we play, and who we are. I'm your host, Robert Fenner, at MisanthroBob on Twitter, and today I'm joined by Seb Gray, a fashion historian. Hi! <laughs> I'm going to talk right into the microphone now. Hello. I will move it close to you okay. so you don't have to lean. Okay. Cool. Yeah, this microphone is now very near my face. So All right. I think that's good. A good amount of my voice. Um, Seb, how the hell are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you. I am very well on this uh, very pleasantly warm Sunday afternoon. It is extremely warm here in London. It is. You want to tell the folks at home a little bit about yourself? Okay. Uh, well, I'm Seb. I play a lot of Nintendo stuff because uh, I love Nintendo. Um I like synthesizers and general 80s shit, and that's kind of my self, I guess, in Hell a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that, that's basically all you need to know about the Seb Grey concept, I think, <laughs> as a starting point. So your first console was a Nintendo 64. It was, was indeed, yes. Was that, the, was that the first time you played games? or? Um, I had a Game Boy before that, uh-huh. uh, so I was already very into the kind of the handheld, like, Super Mario Brothers ones, and... Um, those ones were really weird. They were. Well. I had a lot of time for those. Yeah, like, the first one kind of it was like, okay, so this makes sense, so, like... Bowser is the evil guy and you're rescuing the princess and like mm-hmm. it all goes very huge but then Super Mario Brothers 2 just went kind of like what? Mm-hmm. and like suddenly you could like stomp on stuff and then you do a little spinny jump and I was just like this is insane <laughs> yeah sure mm. um, but I think possibly the first game I ever played was Donkey Kong on the Game & Watch which my uncle bought at oh, an right. airport and my mum found in a cardboard box that was about to be thrown out and it turned out that it actually still works and it only needed a new kind of cell battery or whatever it was that you put in the old game and watches so I was just kind of like hey this is cool yeah um, but yeah very much I think kind of Nintendo would have sort of the games manufacturer that loomed the largest in my sort of childhood landscape and then mm-hmm. kind of more recently I've sort of grown up and go oh well you know there's 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 other stuff um but yeah I never got into Sonic Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, like I think because one of the things I like so much about the Mario games is the setting and the fact that they feel very kind of even when they're linear they still feel very exploratory and you have generally kind of like there's a real sense like, of exploration definitely. there I remember like finding all those different routes through Super Mario World yeah, on, on SNES was absolutely. always I would spend hours doing that absolutely you know? and even in stuff like the first Super Mario Brothers where it's like the level is timed but actually mm-hmm. you have like many more seconds on the timer than you actually need to get through the level so you can spend that amount of time kind of trying to do your jump perfectly so you can get to the next platform and stuff like that yeah um so then i didn't really play any sonic games until i got a bit older and then i was just like but this is just going so fast and i can't appreciate (laughs) any of this scenery and i was just like this level design it's actually really nice but like i don't have time to look at any of it because it's literally just like gotta go fast mm. um but it's really got this kind of like pop um not quite art deco but it's got this very like surreal take on you know like instead of soil textures they have that checkerboard texture yeah, i always found definitely. that super attractive yeah but... it feels a lot more kind of like a built landscape as opposed to i guess the mario games to an extent kind of it's like you've got the mountain one and then you're up a hill and there's like trees and stuff like that whereas sonic kind of it feels like almost like you're in a bowling alley that's gone really wrong (laughs) okay yeah it's just like it's large but it's kind of built specifically for you to go very fast in and do all of the jumps and stuff like that so it's a different it's a different kind of experience Mm -hmm. um but yeah i i haven't started playing it yet but i'm thinking of getting i think sonic mania has had a release for the switch so i'm like 
okay, I think I, I need to sit down with the Sonic games and give them some more time. Yeah. Appreciate them on a, a nice looking screen. I haven't played that one yet, but I'm hearing such great things. Yes, me too. So. And I remember kind of one of my friends recommended it to me and I was all like, oh, I never really got into Sonic because like the central mechanic of go very fast through these nice looking levels that I haven't had any time to look at properly never mm-hmm. really resonated for me. And he was like, yeah, but like this one, there's a reason to go really fast. And it's actually <laughs> okay. like more stuff you can do. So I was just kind of like, yeah, yeah okay, maybe I'll check it out. So that's that's definitely on my list. Yeah, it sounds like it's a fun little remix slash homage of what everybody liked about those games in the 90s. Definitely. I had quite a bit of time for the first uh, three Sonic games because I, I didn't have a Nintendo until I was a little bit older. So like I grew up with a, with a Master System ah, and, yes. and a Mega Drive. So um, Sonic was, well, that was the big thing at the time. Absolutely. For, for kids who didn't have Mario. Yeah. Um, we had to deal with Sonic and... Um, yeah, I had a lot of time for those at when I was that age. Um, I played the Dreamcast ones as well, and I think that's kind of when things went started to get a little bit too complicated. Yeah, you know? I always forget about the Dreamcast. Like, my yeah. main memory of it is... I loved it. Yeah. Like, it was really impressive, kind of visually, and I remember kind of one of my mum's brothers, like... Okay, so, like, near my grandparents' house in, like, the depths of the most boring bit of Bedfordshire... Uh, before the internet was a thing you would go to the video shop and you would rent a game from the place that otherwise rented like VHS tapes but it was like no they also had a massive game section and that was actually how I first played Ocarina of Time before I got my own copy was just like dropped into the middle of like someone else's save file and just like wandered around the inside of the Deku tree and I was just like (laughs) I don't know how any of this stuff works (laughs) but I remember when the Dreamcast came out and they kind of it was considered to be the most impressive thing in the universe and I remember the video shop got a demo one that they had kind of up on their screen so like occasionally you could just like spend 20 minutes just there playing like can't even remember any of the games like my brain's saying duke nukem but i don't think that's the one i mean choo-choo rocket possibly <laughs> yeah it was, it was one of those yeah. ones like that um and yeah and i just remember my uncle coming home one day and go like oh the dreamcast is the best the dreamcast shits all over this we seen the <laughs> graphics on that and i was just kind of like how dare how dare you sully the good name of the nintendo 64 and, and i was kind of deeply offended by it and um, mm-hmm. so i kind of I never really kind of felt like I had much time for the Dreamcast personally because I felt like it. everybody I knew who had really good things to say about it kind of were all like, oh yeah, but the graphics are really good and the processing power is amazing. And I was just kind of like, I guess the thing with Nintendo and that you're still kind of seeing with the Switch is mm. that technically they can lag way behind the sort of the hardware that other manufacturers are releasing but it's just like yeah. but these games are so adorable and so fun and oh so creative like, so, uh, yeah and they're yeah. incredibly creative and incredibly accessible and it just kind of that's always appealed to me in a kind of like watching old episodes of doctor who from the 80s and it's mm-hmm. like you could tell that like all of this scenery was just made out of bubble wrap by someone's mum like in the living room but it's mm-hmm. just like they just take it really seriously and get really into it and i, that, I guess kind of i personally kind of have always felt like i would rather sort of have creative and absorbing mechanics than like an extremely visually detailed kind of world i agree with you completely yeah and i also think that the dreamcast got a little bit of a bad rap definitely um because i mean first of all it was just like a flash in the pan um but 
the late '90s was that period of like the edgy console wars, yes, tribalized gamers against each other, yes. Um, so you had all this Western marketing of the Dreamcast being like, "This is a powerhouse. It's the most powerful console of all time. It can do this." It's thinking was yeah. the uh, ad campaign, but like really, it was kind of bizarre and other. Yeah, there there was a whole bunch of of really strange games that came out for it, like Seaman and yeah. And um, uh, was was Soul Calibur a Dreamcast one originally? I think it was uh, a, a lot of yeah, the games I of that era, kind was, of. Yeah, it? they all kind of blur into one in my mind because like yeah. so many of them were released at around the same time. And I remember kind of, I remember Soul Calibur being huge when that came out. But it yeah. was just kind of like, yeah, a lot of time. Like I think people didn't really know kind of where to place the Dreamcast because I mm-hmm. think sort of before that came out, it was kind. Of, and I very much kind of grew up in the gap between stuff like the Mega Drive and the Master System being a thing. So, yeah. like, when I was born, I used to buy, like, Nintendo Official Magazine, and the uh-huh. letters page would just be people, like, sending in, like, their hand-drawn drawings of, like, a Polyworld stomping on a PlayStation, going, like, oh, fuck the PlayStation. Yeah, that was like every that. games magazine in those days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this would just be, like, five pages of, like, PlayStation hate. So I think when the Dreamcast came out, it was all sort of like, but it's it's not the one that I like or the one that I dislike. I don't yeah. know where to put this in, in my taxonomy of consoles. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I do get that. Um, I feel like, like it was... <laughs> I think it was, like, the last, like, major underdog, in a way. Because yes. it had all that hype around it, but nobody really bought into it. I think... I guess everybody was waiting for the PlayStation 2. Yes. I guess. Um, I always kind of felt like the GameCube kind of felt like a continuation of the Dreamcast. Strangely yes. enough, of, like, Nintendo's next... You know, Nintendo's next console after Sega exited the game. Mm. Um, and it got a whole bunch of Dreamcast ports, and then it just had a bunch of weird games that nobody else had as yeah. well. You know? I have quite fond memories of the the GameCube. Mm. But I think kind of... Because their big flagship release when they released it was Luigi's Mansion. Yeah. Uh, which, at the time, I didn't find kind of the mechanic as instantly accessible as Super Mario 64, which mm-hmm. I guess was its kind of predecessor... Uh, kind of in that sort of landmark game for the new console kind of way yeah um so i picked it up and it was all kind of like because super a64 and stuff like that was just sort of incredibly easy it's like you jump and sometimes you jump at a wall and you bounce off it and that's Mm. like most of the stuff that there is to know about how to interact with the environment but then suddenly in luigi's mansion it's like wow i have a hoover and i can hoover up ghosts and it's got like (laughs) controls and that just felt like I had to spend so much time kind of trying to get the grips with how to hoover up ghosts that at the Uh time I remembered it being really unintuitive and a bit clunky. And I kind of didn't really get much of a sense of when I was doing well at it because I was like, oh, well, I just hoovered up like five ghosts, but I don't know whether I'm actually any closer to solving this puzzle (laughs) or not. Um, So then um, I kind of didn't really think very much about it until I got Luigi's Mansion 2 for the 3DS, which Mm -hmm. was amazing. And just suddenly I was like, wow, I totally need to revisit the original because Luigi's Mansion 2 is just like incredible. I think the original is getting a re-release. Yeah, it's it's about that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta admit, that's uh, those two games are missing from my lexicon. Yeah. I came to GameCube very late. I think like late, late two thousand four. Um, I was working in Virgin Megastore, and I like it was the first job that I had in this country, and I had I actually had money for once, and old GameCubes were going for like thirty pounds. Yeah, they so were. They like, were yes! mad cheap. <laughs> and like. Um, 
Animal Crossing and Paper Mario had both come out like back to back. Yes. So I was like, I need to get in on that. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I have a lot of time for the Paper Mario series as oh, they're well. They're so good. They are. Yeah. Especially, what was the was it the uh, what was the three DS one? I think it's Paper Mario Sticker Star, mm-hmm. which for some reason I just completely love. And I bought it because it was like ten pounds in the Nintendo shop sales. So I was oh, like, wow. yeah, I'm, I'm going to get this, so I got it. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, maybe it'll be a laugh. Um, and I was like, this is amazing. Um, and I think Paper Mario Sticker Star, for some reason, is the game that I hold up as one of my favorite examples of localization absolutely ever. Oh, really? Like, it was my literal favorite, I think, until Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which is just kind of like, you have the Welsh Islands, and then you have the Scottish Islands, and then you have the Australian <laughs> Islands, and it all makes a weird kind of internal sense, even though you're in, like, a different universe, and this is fine. Um, but I think kind of... The thing that I loved about Paper Mario Sticker Star is, like, it was just so ridiculously slapstick. Uh, and kind of, like, the battles were just so kind of knowingly comedic in their mechanics. Mm. Like, you just suddenly, like, bash people with, like, a hammer that's ten times the size of your own body and stuff like that. So that was hilarious. But, like, but, I remember distinctly turning on, like, a giant room fan. Yeah. And, like, blowing everybody away. Yes. Yeah. And, like, you've got a giant hairdryer and stuff like that. And it's just, <laughs> it's so, so daft. Um, but then kind of all of the dialogue is just for some reason really hilariously written mm. like there's a bit where like you get ganged up on by some goombas and the lead goomba goes come on lads let's get him <laughs> and you have the obligatory mario game where like you're in a forest and you have to turn the right way in the forest otherwise you get lost and go back to the beginning right, the lost woods kind yeah of thing. it's yeah. yeah so um i remember kind of that there's a sign when you go in it says something like these woods baffling be careful not to be like that bloke who got baffled three times in a row and i was just kind of like that bloke who got baffled and i was just here like chuckling to myself like on the tube at paper mario sticker star uh so yeah like i'm not sure if that's a treehouse localization it might very well be those guys yeah. are super funny yeah they really know what they're doing. it is a very very funny game mm. and again kind of that did a lot of stuff that i really liked in terms of level design Mm-hmm. Um, which is there's a lot of things where kind of like you have what is initially kind of a large and comparatively threatening looking landscape and there's loads of stuff hidden in it that at the beginning you don't realize yeah and then later on you skill up and you come back and you uncover loads of stuff and you realize how much you missed the first time you played it when you didn't know what you were doing and your character couldn't really do anything yeah so in terms of kind of going back and finding stuff that you missed and like all kinds of little secret paths and stuff like that, I think because probably the reason why I love stuff like that so much is I remember like the first time that I accidentally went into like the warp to level five in Super Mario Brothers or something like that and it completely blew my mind. I was just like, <laughs> wow, I went over the top of the regular warp pipe and into the other warp pipe and the flagpole is red and I'm in a different place. Wow. <laughs> and like that kind of feeling was just kind of like, oh yeah. wow, there's stuff that I wasn't anticipating in this game. So I'm still like a real sucker for any kind of like secret hidden area that you find later on. You go, ooh. Uh, which sticker star just had loads of and there's stuff like you've got to like jump behind a waterfall and stuff like that and there's a real encouragement to go back to older places yes that's something that i always appreciate definitely 
Um, and I think kind of recently, one of the ones that, like, everyone who's played Shantae Half Genie Hero. That's super good. Yes. Yeah. I was actually just thinking of that. Yeah, yeah. Like, I just started that and I haven't got very far, but, like, I can already tell that they've got a lot of kind of skilling up and going back to a place and finding a new thing, stuff going on that I haven't quite got to grips with yet, but I, yeah. I'm excited to see where that goes. Also, the soundtrack is amazing. Oh, yeah. That Jake Kaufman soundtrack. Yeah. It's, it's like one it's of my incredible. favorite soundtracks. Absolutely. Of a couple of years ago. Yeah. And when yeah. You're in like the mermaid factory yeah, yeah that track just, that's my favorite track i know the mermaid factory completely bangs and like it's just so ridiculous because it's like they kidnap local girls and then get fish to <laughs> bite their bottom half so they can yeah. like sell them off as like bootleg mermaid and i'm just like what the fuck is this but it's, it's me, such a cute little animation it and, is it's hilarious this, this track just sounds like a fashion runway it does and it's incredible <laughs> and it's got this kind of really wobbly synth solo with like this sort of vibrato on the patch so it's just sort of like and it's like this is so good it's amazing it is it really is good um, did you ever play any of the old uh, Wonder Boy games? I don't think I did, no. Yeah, um, the remake of Dragon's Trap is on Switch. Oh, yes. I really, really recommend that if you like Shantae. I really do. So, um, yeah, I will check it out. They, they have a lot in common. Um, and that was um, the Wonder Boy games, they were kind of my introduction to the sort of non-linear uh, platformer. Yes. Of like going, you know, what you'd call Metroidvania today. Of, yes. Of going back to places with your new abilities and finding finding things out yeah so um yeah it's something that's been with me for a very very long time definitely was there a uh, game in particular that like showed you the that made you feel that there were like autistic um artistic blah <laughs> artistic merits why not both <laughs> why not both <laughs> very good yes yeah artistic merits mm -hmm. uh, so, um so more than just uh more than just a diversion um I don't know. I mean, I think kind of art style is always something that I've paid a lot of attention to because mm -hmm. a lot of the games that I grew up with are really nice looking, even when the hardware and kind of the the processing capability hasn't been that impressive. Mm. Um, but I think kind of the one that wowed me the absolute most the first time I played it was Ocarina of Time. Mm -hmm. um, just because I think that was the first one I played that had like, it opens with a long kind of cut scene and you've got like the giant Deku tree and just stuff like that. And yeah. uh, uh, that was the first 3D game that I played that I was just like, wow, actually you can render stuff that like, even if it doesn't look necessarily quote realistic unquote, like it looks amazing and it's got a really distinctive style and you just feel like it's, it, it's just got a lot of kind of details that sort of tie the whole world together and that was the one that just sort of to look at i was like yeah i could spend ages just kind of wandering around this world going like oh this looks really cool and stuff like that and mm. it was sort of stuff like the fairy fountain when you go in and like in this kind of sparkling pond mm -hmm. and then like the fairies go out there wearing like a dress made of ivy and shit like that and i was just <laughs> like this looks awesome this is yeah. amazing um and now it's like i kind of look back at it and i'm like yeah it's got that kind of chunky polygon kind of thing and everybody's got like a rhombus for a face and stuff like that but it's just so kind of of its time in a way mm -hmm. that like it still feels just really full of character and mm -hmm. i really enjoyed uh replaying ocarina of time on the 3ds because it took everything that i liked about the art style but just kind of cleaned it up a bit and just made it kind of slightly shinier yeah so it's a little bit more like how it is in your memory definitely than how it actually looked. yeah so like yeah. you play the original now and you're like wow everything is a lot more angular than i remember but then <laughs> when you play the 3ds version it's like yeah there's all these shiny textures and stuff like that and i think 
the kind of benefits from that smaller screen is definitely it really does can you really appreciate like the amount of detail that they kind of packed into not very much space and Mm -hmm. stuff like once you get into the second half and you do the big kind of temples and stuff like like, those look amazing Mm. and like the water temple looks amazing um and something that i only noticed kind of after a couple of plays through on the 3ds is that actually They've made all of the wall markings in the water temple so that if you follow murals of the same colour, then mm-hmm. it leads you to the bit that you're going to. Okay, right. Because I remember at the time, like the water temple is everybody the one complains that about everyone the water hates temple. the water temple. The water <laughs> temple was my favourite. Oh really? I mean, I also love the forest temple because uh-huh. that's really good. Um, but my favourite bit of the forest temple was that block pushing puzzle where, like, you're in a maze and you have to push a block and then go around the other way and push the block from the other side so yeah. you can clear the bit. Um, and yeah, the water temple was just like that, but huge. And, like that was the whole temple. Uh-huh. Um, and for some reason, I just really enjoyed it because I was like, yeah, it's like you're picking a lock from the inside. <laughs> and I have a lot more time for water water level puzzles than many people seem to. Like, I know lots of people. Just go oh no not a water level puzzle but i really like that one for some reason i quite like water levels because i just like sort of aquatic aesthetics definitely yeah and i definitely kind of put that down to well there's a a couple of kind of very much kind of overtly underwater things that i grew up with that i really loved like the first one was that disney's the little mermaid was my first ever favorite film okay and the first videotape that i owned but i could only watch it at my grandma's house because my parents didn't have a video player so every time (laughs) i went to my nan's house it was like yeah i guess we're watching the little mermaid on repeat so all of that just kind of like you know ocean shit from the 90s was just like my favorite ever thing yeah uh, there was that there was like echo the dolphin which is insanely nice looking and kind of scary yeah, oh yeah <laughs> like it goes really high concept yeah it does yeah and i remember kind of like at the time i played it a little bit but like obviously i just kept dying because it's pretty much the hardest game ever invented by anyone and then i re i replayed it um when they did all of the uh re-releases for the 3ds and i replayed it but i had to set it to the setting where you literally can't die okay and i still found it really difficult and i was like but this just looks so great it's very i always find it very anxiety inducing because anytime you're having to manage oxygen levels yeah you, you can turn that off yeah yeah and i think also like I get a very kind of, it makes me really anxious whenever there's any kind of element of like what if I run out of air because like as a child I had asthma and like mm-hmm. whenever it was like oh god it's allergy season so kind of I, I just had this right. very kind of visceral reaction to like oh god I'm running out of air and it would just kind of give me a sort of asthma attack by proxy because I was thinking so hard about it oh, and wow. I'd just be there like yeah. <laughs> don't like this <laughs> so yeah being able to turn off the I'm gonna run out of air mechanic is uh, is okay mm. yeah except for some reason the uh, the one in Super Mario 64 is the only one that doesn't bother me because the noise he makes when he runs out of air is so funny. That's funny that you mention that because like, I've heard a lot of uh, people saying that that kind of traumatized them when they were a kid. Yes, yeah, so I just found it really hilarious. Like He just goes kind of... <laughs> and then he's like back on dry land again. <laughs> and he does this kind of little flaily arm... He does a little flaily arm kind of like movement. And like retrospectively, like it possibly is kind of troubling, but also because like, you know... It's, it's less Mario scary than that like... Sonic music. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like it's Mario and he's like 
for all intents and purposes, literally unkillable. Like, no matter how many times, like, he dies, like, he, he's always fine. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that, um, the, just, like, all of the discomfort voice acting in that game is really funny. <laughs> and I'm not normally the kind of person who finds that funny, but I just remember kind of, it's like, in the lava level, when you're, like, trying to climb up a volcano, and you fall in the lava. And, the pants and then, on fire. Yeah, so, and his yeah. pants are on fire, and he goes, ha <laughs> ha And then, like, jumps in the air, and, like, clutches his own bum and there's just like smoke coming out of the seat of his pants and i'm just like this is hilarious it's kind of cute yeah. it is and when he falls off a really high cliff and he just goes kind of wow which i kind of got a fondness for that because i think when i first started playing that game i didn't really kind of have a sense of when you get up to a wall that you can't get over it's because it's the end of the level rather yeah. than because like i just can't jump high enough Mm-hmm. so like i spent so much time kind of trying to jump over the edge of the world mm. before i like wanted to accept that like you actually can't so Gotta test those borders yeah, yeah exactly and i was just kind of like oh but you never know because like it very much did feel like the kind of game where it was plausible that like if you just like got up to the furthest possible hill you could see and then jumped over it like there might be something else there mm-hmm. um and i remember it was one of the one of the water level uh ones it's the one with like the pond skaters in it and it's like yeah i know yeah. the one is that dry dry dock uh, no it was uh, dry world wet, wet dry world I yeah, think was the, the one, one. Yeah. yeah and there's this bit where like you have to raise the water level to the maximum and then there's this really kind of unassuming looking fence in the corner but then when you jump over it and then you swim down the tunnel and then it turns out that there's, the level was actually twice as big as you thought and there's this whole kind of other entire like underwater city that yeah. you have to just climb over this really boring looking fence to find <laughs> and that completely blew my mind so it very much kind of it felt plausible that there was always more stuff mm. yeah the, um they've always been good at at hiding those things from yeah you and just in it, it, enticing your imagination in that way definitely um i was always sort of living vicariously through the water levels because um, i grew up in the middle of america where there was no natural body of water oh dear. And I never i never left kansas until i was nine years old and my mom took me to new york with her for a week and then like i i went to the hudson river and went to the beach at coney island um but like before then it was always like you know having to having to to feed this this desire for for an aquatic climate um, yeah through these digital landscapes definitely and i think mm. i get i get a similar thing with deserts like i just really love any kind of desert level because yeah. i'm from london which is uh, <laughs> not renowned for its sand-based landscapes it's desert levels snowy levels and um like port towns and aquatic levels yes still Uh, i have a very big fondness for definitely i i I like volcano levels as well but i find the color palette kind of overwhelming Mm -hmm. um yeah and i'm literally in super mario 64 there's one where you kind of like you literally jump into a volcano and then you climb to like the middle of the volcano and then there's a star there and i'm like this is fine but like why would mario jump into an active <laughs> volcano which has which like when you have to wait until it's not erupting so that you can climb into it and i'm just like what, what are you doing <laughs> but that is another one where it's like you climb into the volcano um in it was like the egyptian pyramids level where like you can climb into one of the pyramids mm. and that was just incredible and like a lot of those levels it's like you get into them and they look really large but then it's like you find a bit and you realize that there's actually like twice as much stuff as you thought there was because it's all hidden in a volcano or a pyramid or behind a fence and stuff like that and i'm just like i don't really understand this but that's cool Mm. like why wouldn't mario climb into a volcano that he just burnt himself on i mean i guess that makes perfect sense (laughs) ah the promised giant cat 
Ah, uh, here he is. Porsche, welcome to the show. It's alright. He's a little nervous with yeah. new people. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. I understand. Yeah, so there so when you were growing up there was there was Mario sixty four and, and Zelda and um what else sort of stuck out uh, to you along the way? Oh the the rareware games definitely. Uh-huh. Like they were massive. Um I remember, I think Donkey Kong 64 was the first one that I played. Yeah. Um, and I remember it got really good reviews in Nintendo Official Magazine, which at the time was my Bible for, like, games that are good, which said to be playing shit like Glover that, like, about three people bought, which is just, <laughs> like, you play, like, a sentient glove. <laughs> yeah, one of my previous guests brought up Glover as well. Yeah, I, I remember just, I, I was, yeah, I, that was a big thing in 1998 for some reason. I it think was. nobody bought it, but it was just everywhere. It was yeah. a very, uh, very purposeful marketing campaign for Glover. Yeah, and for, for some reason, like, that was just huge for about six months, and then nobody ever mentioned Glover again, but that was great. Um, but yeah, I remember kind of... Uh, Nintendo Official Magazine gave Donkey Kong 64 like 97 out of 100 or something ridiculous like that, which mm-hmm. was like the highest score I could ever remember them giving to anything at the time. So I bought it, and... I remember lots of people saying they didn't like it too much mm-hmm. because like games with large amounts of collectibles seem to have fallen massively out of fashion basically since the Nintendo 64. Yeah, rare um, that was really their oeuvre. Very much. That was very much their thing. Um, and I remember kind of talking to people since about uh, Donkey Kong 64 and they've gone, oh, but you just like run around collecting shit. And I'm like, what's not to like? Um, and again, that was sort of one of the ones where uh, Rare definitely had a really good sense of kind of each level is kind of themed around an element or a landscape or a central concept. So it was mm-hmm. like you've got your your jungle level and your volcano level and the underwater level. Um, and they had like this steampunk toy factory thing. Hmm. Um, but yeah, like again, that was another one where I really like kind of finding out ways to unlock all of the bits, mm-hmm. um, which is... See, again it's the thing that like seems to come up a lot of the time when I talk about what I like about games is I like levels that they start off looking really threatening and then you come back to them and you're like aha now I have mastered this unforgiving <laughs> landscape uh, so there was that and uh, Banjo-Kazooie and Banjo-Tooie were also massive for me and I actually played oh. Banjo-Tooie first mm-hmm. um, and I didn't play Banjo-Kazooie too much at the time um, but then it was a few years ago and I got um, I set up an N64 emulator on my computer and I just played through Banjo-Kazooie and I realized that actually... Was that your first time properly playing through yeah, it? Yeah, it was my first time kind of playing the whole game in one go rather mm-hmm. than just kind of doing a little bit of the time and forgetting about it for six months and starting again. So that was the first time that I kind of actually completed it. And then I realized that actually the whole game is just... When you compare it to Banjo-Tooie, it's like the whole of Banjo-Kazooie is just the training level for (laughs) Banjo-Tooie. Okay. And it's like, because the entire overworld is like in the evil witch Gruntilda's hideout. Um, And kind of that at the time feels really huge. And you just go into like all of the deep levels of like the witch HQ and like infiltrate her like system and stuff like that. Um, But then like... It's one of those ones where, like, you have to collect stuff and then trade it in for, like, new fancy moves and things like that. Which is a mechanic that, like, I always really enjoy because it's mm-hmm. like, what's not to like about being able to jump higher than I could before? And that always just felt really affirming and nice to yeah, get the, new, the sort of skills. Pro- progression-based system. Definitely. Like, or... it, it felt kind of a, like a good kind of rewarding gradient where... Um, but then I remember when I compared it to Banjo-Tooie, because I played them both back-to-back, so I was like, right, I'm going to play them in order. Um, and I realized that actually, again, like not just in terms of the level design, but even in terms of your skill set, you start Banjo-Tooie 
with all of the moves that you spent the whole game getting in Banjo Kazooie. And those are just, and then you meet like the army mole guy who is mm. like the aggressive brother of the mole who taught you your moves in your previous game. And he's just like, oh yeah, those are like beginner moves, pussies. I'm going to teach you the real shit. <laughs> okay. And then you get like different kinds of egg projectiles, and like Kazooie can like walk on her hind legs up really steep slopes and stuff like that. And it's just kind of like. Wow, I thought my last skill set was impressive, but now I can do all this extra shit. <laughs> okay, yeah, because I hadn't played uh, Banjo-Tooie. Um, that's, yeah, it's interesting that it starts from a position of, you know, kind of almost expecting you to come come off the back of the prequel. Yeah, while and like they make a lot of stuff. jokes about it, like in mm-hmm. the dialogue and stuff like that as well. And because uh, it's rare, like everybody has a very strong sense of the fact that they're in a game and this is their life and it's fine. And people say stuff like, oh, I haven't seen you since Banjo-Kazooie and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, and they did that, I think, in Donkey Kong 64 as well, where like you get the ghost of Wrinkly Kong coming back and saying like, oh, well, obviously I've passed away since Donkey Kong Country 3, but I'm still here to dispense my wisdom in the form of a ghost. And I'm like, okay. So it's just kind <laughs> right of like on. being in a game is like these characters' day job, I guess. And they very much yeah. kind of present it like, yeah, I know I'm in the game universe, but that's also kind of my real universe. And there's just something very charming about it. I think there's a fine line of handling that. Definitely. Um, I think you need to... I think you need to be committed to the tongue-in-cheek aspect. Yes. Because um, I played I played the Suda 5-1 game, Killer is Dead, um, a few years ago. Because um, I was curious as to how bad it was. It was, <laughs> it was pretty bad, i got to yeah, say. Yeah, I hear it's bad. Um, but yeah, that had just like a throwaway line at the end of the game. The <laughs> character saying like, well, you know, I'm the final boss, and... But, like, there wasn't really anything else before that. Yeah, so, so it's kind so, of like, oh, now you decide to be so, self-aware. Like, you can't just throw that in there. Yeah, I think you need to go a little bit further. Definitely. Or you need to be, you need to be more charming about yes. it. Yes. Um, but I, then I think if you take it too far without that much of the charm, then you end up in, like... You get a little bit too silly as Yeah, well, like, right? I, I found that with Retro City Rampage. It's like, this is fun. Yeah. But it's so aware that it's a pastiche that it just kind of, like, doesn't let you stop laughing at the games that it's making fun of and actually, like, enjoy it in and of itself. It's then you just end up going, like, oh, yeah, I'd rather be playing, like, Vice City or something like that. I was very, very on board with Retro City Rampage. And then when I actually played it, it was like, oh, this doesn't really have... Have that much of an identity it's just like a collection of references yeah exactly so it's a little like big bang theory yeah it's very much kind of like hey that thing you like we also like that thing but we're also <laughs> gonna laugh at it and you yeah. will laugh along too because you remember the thing and it's like well yeah i remember the thing but like i remember it fondly it's not inherently funny without a joke yeah <laughs> exactly know? yeah yeah um, so yeah like in the end i ended up getting quite frustrated with that and i didn't, yeah i I put a little bit of time into it, but I ended up dropping off once I realized, okay, this is what this is, and this is this is what's passing is the sense of humor, and it's just not for me yeah. um, at all. Um, no, I, I had exactly the same, but I also very much got a sense that like, it could have been really good if they'd been slightly kind of less just kind of like, look at our joke, laugh at our joke. The joke we are making is funny and more just kind of like playing it straight, but like we laugh because we know all of the things that it's referencing and it's funny. Mm-hmm. But it was just, it felt like it didn't really trust you to kind of get that it was a joke. So it had to tell you all the time. And I'm just kind of mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm tired. <laughs> this is just becoming exhausting now. Yeah, no, I, I get that completely. I would much prefer a game to give me credit to 
<laughs> get something on on my own and if i don't get it i mean i guess that's fine yeah i would rather you know not get something than have something explained over and over and over again because that's not comedy that's not a sign of good comedy definitely you know? it's kind of like oh we're, we're very insecure about our jokes so we're just going to check that you got it and i'm just like oh <laughs> Um, so moving on from the N64, where did you, where did your, your gaming trajectory go from there? Uh, my gaming trajectory from there, um, kind of, it took a backseat for a little while because I remained kind of very attached to the N64, but then I did stuff like my A-levels and mm -hmm. I moved out and things like that. Um, and then I, I still played a lot of kind of portable Game Boy stuff, but I didn't really kind of get back into gaming until one of my friends was like the first person I knew who bought a Wii. Mm -hmm. And at first I was just kind of like, this is insane, because the whole idea of motion controls at that point, like now they're just a kind of normal thing. But at the time, it very much kind of felt like they were using them for basically everything and it got a bit overwhelming. And I was suddenly bad at Mario Kart. Mm-hmm. And I'd never been bad at Mario Kart before because, like, before before that, it was like I played uh, Mario Kart 64 and Double Dash and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then, like, Mario Kart on the Wii, it was just like suddenly, like, I was holding a steering wheel, but it wasn't attached to anything. So it was just kind of like driving in midair. And I was like, this feels odd. Um, and very much kind of since then, I've, you know, taken lessons at driving an actual car and I very much kind of rely on like getting that level of physical feedback from the engine so that I know kind of when I'm in the right gear and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and I think kind of just sort of the experience of driving, but like you're just miming driving was really weird mm. and it really threw me off. But uh, so I was just kind of like, oh, I, I don't know how I feel about the brave new world of uh, of games. I was very skeptical because um, when it came out, I was, well, I was a super lazy boy and I was um, very much enjoying playing games in bed. And yes. I was like, I can't play games in bed and have my arms above my head. That's not going to be any fun at all. Definitely. <laughs> and that's the thing that I found a lot with kind of ios games that rely on sort of stuff like that like i love temple run and i love temple run 2 and they are extremely nice looking games especially the second one but when you have to tilt in order to go around a corner and i'm like but i like to play this lying on my side on the sofa because i'm having a nice relaxing gaming time so i have to like sit up and you know have a normal person's like sitting up posture so like th that this is one of the things that i very much love about the switch is it lends itself well to any gaming posture that you care to adopt like, yeah it you, does. Know, it, you, you can manage <laughs> uh, so i kind of i was a, a kind of a late convert to the world of motion controls being a thing mm -hmm. um I yeah remember, i was too yeah i, I got mine in 2010 because there were a few games that i that were just coming out that i wanted to try yeah uh, so Mario Kart on the Wii was the first game that I played with motion control, so I was just kind of like, yeah, I'm not sure about this. Um, but then the thing, for some reason, where it just clicked in my brain, and I was like, yeah, no, I understand this now, was Wii Sports Resort. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Which is still, like, in my mind, one of the best party games that there is. Because um, I was playing, and for some reason, specifically the Frisbee Golf. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just, like, you throw a Frisbee, and then, a, like, a dog retrieves your Frisbee and stuff like that. So, like, you had a really good kind of, like, Frisbee mime, where it actually kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I just played that, and for some reason, that was incredibly fun. And uh, I think... I, I played a lot of Wii games at friends' houses, but I never bought one because a lot of the time I felt like kind of I wasn't really sure what the object of the game was in a way beyond just kind of like, oh, this is a laugh. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I remember I played. Uh, uh, my flatmate at the time had one, so I played like whatever the Paper Mario released for that was. But I found the whole like being able to climb into walls mechanic kind of confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was one of the weaker Paper Marios. I yeah, admit. I was really jazzed about it, and then it just wasn't what I was looking for. Yeah, I think Sticker Star definitely kind of takes that kind of being able to move between dimensions thing, and it, it does that properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's very much a kind of a refinement of the the concept for me. Uh, so I played that and uh, also I have a lot of fondness for Wii Music which was just the stupidest game I've ever played <laughs> because you literally It's a big controversy like... over the uh, reveal video for that if I remember correctly. Oh yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just kind of like I have no idea what I'm doing. Um but I remember the first time I played Wii Music, uh, one of my friends who is like possibly an even bigger nintendo fanboy than i am he just buys pretty much literally everything that they release and he got it um and at the time like me and my housemate went around to our friend's house and we were just like okay yeah we're gonna play wii music for the afternoon and because uh, we all had our little like me's of ourselves that we'd spent ages painstakingly crafting um and then it was like uh, we also had a bunch of me's of like famous people so we formed a band with like Donald Pleasance and like Michael Myers from the Halloween films <laughs> and we put like Michael Myers on the, the Nez horn or whatever it was Yeah. Um, and then I discovered that like if you pressed one of the trigger buttons then you could get your saxophone to do like a ridiculous arpeggio thing um, and then so you record a song and it's all kind of like I don't really understand where the game mechanic of this is beyond just pressing some buttons, but it's very charming. Um, but then for me, the real fun was when you have to make artwork for your your album release and you get to like put your Mii's faces on it. But you can kind of... And this was a really good thing about the motion controls is you can kind of move the controller like closer to or further away from the screen and it will kind of position like where your character sort of is in mm-hmm. terms of like the zoom on it. Um, and one of my friends just like, I say one of my friends. This was Joe Rowan, who you totally know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So my friend Joe. He's great. Shout yeah, out to Joe. He, he's a good guy. Shout out to Joe. So yeah, my friend Joe, um, who has been my best friend for like 15 years now and has been with me through uh, many gaming-based adventures. But yeah, so he just kind of like... Joe, come on the show. Yeah, Joe definitely should come on the show. I agree. Um, but yeah, so he, he was in our band with like Donald Pleasance and Michael Myers from the Halloween films. Um, and we were making album artwork for it. And he positioned his face so that it was like zoomed in really close but also kind of at an angle so it was like everybody else was just like framed normally and he was just kind of like peering really close into the edge (laughs) of the shot and then we just laughed so hard that we cried for like two hours like just at that and I was just like this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen but for some reason it's just kind of really struck a chord with me in terms of just like the pure hilarity of it that's wonderful yeah it was it was just one of the most kind of pure joy moments that I've had and I was just kind of like because it doesn't really feel like there's that much kind of there isn't that much of an adrenaline surge that you get from playing Wii music. Yeah. Like, it's very much just kind of like a comedically short guy teaches you how to play some instruments and then you form a band. And it's just kind of like, this is good. there's no real sense of peril. It's like, there's no licensed music, is there? Isn't it all kind of like, like goofy, like public domain stuff or Nintendo songs? Am yeah, there's Nintendo songs and there's like Happy Birthday and yeah, stuff Yeah, I like seem that. to remember like the reveal video had like twinkle twinkle little star yes and i was coming off the back of like because i was really into beat mania with its ridiculous dj controller yes uh and then like it was like okay well you know you played beat mania now there's wii music yes like here's twinkle twinkle little star yeah i was like this is so stupid but i'm kind of compelled yeah like it's 
it's wholesome to an absurd degree. Yeah. But yeah, for some reason, it was just like something about the fact that I was just having a lot more fun than I was expecting, just kind of, I found very heartening. Um, so then I kind of, like, I think that was the point at which I started kind of realizing that I should keep a closer eye on what Nintendo were doing, because mm. I felt like they that was kind of their era of they had a lot of ideas and some of them were just overtly goofy missteps but i was like they're never gonna be boring mm-hmm. and i found that quite good and just sort of generally charming and encouraging and i think uh, this is a principle which has since been vindicated with the release of the switch and it's many excellent games yeah finally yes because I, mean, I like the wii u but it had such poor support yes but i i thought it was a very very charming device yes and, and seeing that they've you know they finally got it right with this in-between of the handheld and the and the home console, definitely. I'm so thrilled about it. Yes, so me too. Worked out because um, I was a little bit sad to see that. Like initially, I was sad to see that. Like, okay, so this is going to be a handheld console as well. So that'll probably mean the end of the 3ds, which like it no doubt will in the next year. But the thing that I really like about um, the 3ds and the Vita and like the PSP and the DS before it is that it kind of felt like a continuation of the earlier generations that I had a lot of fondness for. Definitely. Like, um, you know, like the 64-bit consoles or even, like, early PS2 stuff. That yeah. It's a little rough around the edges, but it doesn't really matter because the games have a lot of heart. Definitely. And I kind of felt like, oh, you know, with such a, a, a more powerful device uh, becoming, like, the new handheld, we might see some of these games fall away. But I think that more developers are taking... Um, well, I mean, there's a real surplus of indie developers at the moment, which is fantastic. It but is I think, very good. Like more developers are are seeing that they can make like these smaller budget, maybe like rougher, rougher games, and they're just as valid. Absolutely, like, I, I credit excited. Shovel Knight with really kind of kicking off the whole sort of maybe we can do this, and it doesn't have to be kind of like a hilarious joke, and it doesn't <laughs> have to be a kind of throwaway thing. Because like it's really earnest. Yeah, and Shovel really, Knight is amazing. Really faithful as it well. is, and it's also just kind of like incredibly up there with games that i played kind of at the time like it feels like a really good snes game and yeah. it doesn't feel like it's trying to be a really good snes game so you go oh yeah i remember the snes like that was a laugh i should play like Mega Man 2 again that'd be cool or whatever yeah, Wait, Mega like... Man 2 was the nes wasn't it oh well y- y- yeah well, that it, kind of thing i think it feels a lot like Mega Man 2 in particular but it it's does. also transformative yes and definitely. you know it 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 doesn't just replicate it builds on it builds on what uh what these developers liked about that era but you know they didn't just say okay let's do what we like they said okay let's do what we like and let's see how we can let's see how we can shake this up definitely as well yeah and kind of i think when i first bought shovel knight it was just kind of like oh yeah this is an indie game that's got some good reviews and i was just playing it and i was just sort of it was so much better and more absorbing than i was expecting that i was just kind of like wow this is incredible um and now it's like it had a physical like cartridge release and there's loads of expanded content and now it's like shovel knight is a heavy hitter in the world of like games yeah he's getting he's got his own amiibo now doesn't he 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 does and like shovel knight like he showed up in uh what was the fake uh banjo kazooie game that they made because of copyright ukulele yeah shovel knight shows up in that okay yeah and uh, he's like oh yeah i'm shovel knight i'm taking a break from adventuring to give you this side quest in this game that we're in and it's just (laughs) kind of like yeah wow shovel knight's a big deal now like he's going places and yeah he's got his own merchandise and stuff like that it's just sort of like yeah um shovel knight really kind of 
gave me a renewed appreciation of the fact that indie games can be extremely, extremely good. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the times like, I play them and it's like, they look nice and somebody's clearly put a lot of effort into this. But I think that was the first one that sort of everybody went, wow, yeah, like small studios can definitely hold their own against the big ones because like this is just a very well-made quality game. If I'm remembering correctly, I think it was one of the first like super... Um successful kickstarter games yes. not not in that like the kickstarter was successful but that they delivered on yes on what they what they had you know promised and purported to be definitely you know, like it's the opposite of the mighty number no. nine i think oh god yeah you know in many many ways absolutely but um yeah um I'm, I'm i've been playing a lot of indie games at the moment because there so many of them have just resonated so deeply with me um Night in the Woods was my favorite game oh, last yeah. year. Oh, yeah, I hear that's good. I have not played yeah, it yet. Yeah, you should check that out. I will. It's super, super biting and mm. funny um, and super cute as well. Um, have you seen Octopath Traveler? Yes. Oh, wow. I'm super looking forward to that. Me too. I love the... It looks like a diorama. It really does. Um, and, like, I played, I played the demo version of Bravely Default. Yeah. Um, but I found that... The only real complaint I have with the demo versions on the 3DS is that sometimes it feels like it's just kind of dropping you into a level of the game, but without any of the kind of handholdy tutorial bits that mm-hmm. help you get to grips with it, which is fine for stuff like I played the Kirby, uh, the new Kirby game on the Switch, I can't remember what it's called, but I played the demo of that and it was like, this is good because this is an inherently easy game to get to grips with, so it doesn't matter that like... I've only got like half an hour's worth of gameplay in it because that's all Kirby's you need just to... like a quick playground. Yeah, you know, you, always you, a delight. You pick it up and you start playing it, and you're like, oh yeah, this is cool. And like, I put on a hat, I've got a sword, you know, and that's kind of like that's cool. Um, but I remember I played the demo of Bravely Default, and I was just mm-hmm. kind of like, this needs a lot more time to make it make sense. Um, oh boy, the full game gives you so much time. Yeah, like, too much time. Yeah, that that is very much my impression of it, and it's like. I, I like games like that where sort of, I mean, you know, I'm the one who's well into my 200th hour of Xenoblade Chronicles 2 at this point, so I very much like that kind of thing, but you need the time to kind of get to grips with the world and all of the mechanics and stuff like that, and I felt like this isn't really a game that I can get a good sense of from the demo version, mm-hmm. because it's like, I'm just wandering around and I don't really know what I'm doing, and nothing makes sense, and I don't know whether I should, like, actually fight these random encounters or whether i should just run away because i don't know what's going to happen and i don't have any sense of the plot and it just felt very kind of overwhelming mm-hmm. um but that's something that i definitely want to revisit and kind of sit down and play the game properly and go no i'm going to put the time into this and have it make sense and like i was quite far into xenoblade 2 before the battle mechanics started making sense oh yeah it took me a number of hours maybe like five or possibly more yeah um it, that game has such a slow start and it's um, I think I think it was Jason Schreier of Kotaku who described it as like the anti Nintendo game of 2017 because yeah. like the Switch uh, was such a year of you know games like um, Zelda and and um, uh, Mario Odyssey are very much like here um, here is a very accessible world yes um, go nuts use these toys have this sense of discovery and Xenoblade Two. Uh, is very 
mm, you need to spend some time and a lot of it is just so opaque and you yes. only see those tutorials once and then never again yeah and, and there's bit, no oh. way to replay them and a lot of the time like a lot of the different kind of combos very similarly named yeah and the names don't really kind of give you an indication what it is so it's like oh you can perform a driver combo or a blade combo or a chain attack and it's just kind <laughs> of like this is a lot of words and like i don't really know what makes any of these things different for the other things um and it's only by kind of repeated encounters and playing a lot of it you kind of actually start to get to grips with it and there's still loads of stuff about like different weapon categories that like i don't really know what i'm doing mm -hmm. um and it's like um i've completed the main quest now and now i'm like determined to do all of the side quests okay. and like all of the rare blades even the one which you have like a 0.5 percent chance of getting or whatever <laughs> because i'm just like no I'm, go I'm gonna get all the rare blades i'm gonna do it um and one of the things that i really like about the story is that like i should probably add like a mild warning for possible assembly two spoilers at this mm -hmm. point but one of the things that i really like about it is that chronologically and thematically it actually makes perfect sense to complete the main quest and then just carry on doing all the side quests because it's like okay, okay yeah we've we've defeated the final boss um and like one of their big mechanics is uh like in terms of how the universe works is like where blade gets bonded to its driver but then once it return once the blade returns to its crystal then they lose all of their memories so then the next time they reawaken they basically like start with a completely new kind of memory slate essentially uh so i just kind of felt like uh, and there's also that kind of theme of like yeah we're saving the world and like rescuing our overpopulated society by like getting to the uh, the land of abundance and stuff like that and it's all mm -hmm. got these very kind of grand biblical themes it's kind of a trademark of the xeno series Definitely. Like all of them have kind of done that i mean i think this is it's still very present here but i mean boy oh boy some of those earlier games were just like complete pastiches of neon genesis evangelion very much so <laughs> this is about the right level of pastiche i think yeah um, but yeah i basically say like i've got my kind of post game party just kind of running around doing stuff and in my mind it kind of even though there's no kind of specific indication that you're now post main quest aside from like a little medal next to like your save file and stuff like that but it's mm -hmm. just kind of like in my mind it makes perfect sense that like all of my characters like having saved the world and like brought everybody up to speed on kind of what happens when their memory was lost or whatever it's like okay so now they're just running around fixing people's lives because they're friends and they've saved the world <laughs> so they may as well kind of carry on like being essentially freelance problem solvers because why not <laughs> it, like, it very much feels like what they would do is kind of right. like oh yeah okay so you know we beat the final boss and we saved civilization so now we're just gonna like wander around and see if anybody else needs yeah. helping because you're not just gonna pack it in yeah definitely <laughs> it's like you know, they've been through a lot of things yeah. yeah so in my mind kind of that's what they're doing now you know that's their job is they walk around and they talk to people and then whenever somebody goes i have problem they do there we are party of seasoned adventurers will help you out with this thing so like in my brain that's just what my set of blade post game party are doing they've, we'll, just, they've we'll, just made it their job now we'll we'll help sneak you chocolate uh, yeah while, definitely. Your, while your blade doesn't know oh yeah <laughs> that, 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 that side quest like it goes some emotional places that one like it's that one it takes weird off. And long it is yeah yeah and it's like and then it, so it starts off like oh yeah i get it i just have to like bring you some rice so you can make dumplings and it's like okay but then i also have to sneak you chocolate while your blade is judging you for your bad dietary habits and it's like okay so now i have to reunite you with your estranged children who live in two different empires <laughs> and then it's just kind of like well that escalated <laughs> i was really unprepared for like i didn't think it was gonna level. keep going yeah. yeah no they got a lot of mileage out of that and i mean 
when I started off, kind of some of the side quests were kind of like, oh yeah, so I need to bring you like five of this thing, but now you need five of this other thing. So like when I think I finished it, you're going to send me off, and like I'm just going to collect yeah. a bunch more items. You start to recognize that as the more yeah. side quests you do. Yeah, yeah. but. I think initially I was just kind of like, oh, I'm not really feeling the side quest. But then, like, they they get very high concept, and mm. they like they do a lot of stuff. And like, and then some of them, it's like, okay, now so I'm like, now I'm in charge of an entire band of mercenary soldiers, <laughs> and like, and oh man, it just yeah, the 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 amount of things in it is just there's a lot of things. And individually, all of the jobs kind of feel like very small jobs, but mm. then they start stacking up. And it does that kind of slightly Majora's Mask kind of thing of where you're like, hey, wow, I'm making everybody's lives make more sense. And now the problems <laughs> are solved. And you get little stars next to like the towns and where you've raised their like their their economy to a better level and stuff like that yeah and it, it introduces you to that mechanic really early on in the game like before you really have a chance to make sense of it so i remember it's like your bioshop's deed it's yeah like, okay what am i gonna, what am i going to do with that yeah you, you become the landlord of the shops and they give you like an extra five percent running speed and stuff like <laughs> that and i remember like they introduce you to this very early on in the game and i was just kind of like oh well that's kind of cute but i don't really see that i'm gonna get that invested in like building up the economy of my towns because that feels like it's erring on a bit of the kind of Caesar 3 level of things which is fine but like mm. it was it was not really kind of what I get really into um, and it's only once you're much later in the game that you realise actually you get a lot of benefits from raising the economic level of all of these towns and becoming the uh, the, the freeholder of their, their shop and the ultimate slumlord yeah to get that running speed up absolutely yeah, yeah. and it kind of like you re you don't realize until much later that actually it's a very rewarding thing to do in terms of like the number of benefits that you get so now i'm just kind of like oh yeah i've got to make sure that like all of my shops have the maximum inventory and stuff like that and it's a very peculiar like hidden mini game that they yes. put in there yeah and there's a lot of those because like all of the rare blades also have their own side quests yeah which is really great and it very much kind of makes you feel like even when I think I've found all the stuff there is to find. It's like you know, all of the blades, like you have to kind of spend time sort of with them kind of leveling up their skills and doing their side quests. And like, oh my God, I mean, this is a thing which has been mentioned a lot, but the rare blades are just like ridiculous. Mm -hmm. The character design is so good. And none of them look anything like each other because they were like all drawn by different artists yeah. and stuff like that, which is great. But then they've all got some kind of like really niche side skill. Like there's like the ice healer woman who is like secretly an amazing musician, but also has terrible stage fright. So you have to like. Is that the lady with the polar bear? Yeah, she's got really a polar started... bear. Yeah, I've only yeah. really started unlocking these. I had a lot of bad luck, and all my rare crystals were just giving me like the standard blades. Yeah, which I've all finally... look exactly the same, except they've got like a different element or something. Yeah. Like yeah. I finally started unlocking some of them. I've got Electra, I've got the lady with the polar bear. Electra's great fun. Yeah, she's adorable. Yeah. Um, wham bam. Yeah, she's um... got like <laughs> pigtails made out of lightning and stuff like that. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got the mercenary guy, and I've oh, got. Yeah. I've got the like the librarian lady who's like made out of reams of paper. And oh yeah, space that's annoying. In between, yeah, yeah, and like I all love of, her design. She's adorable. she's great, yeah. and all of her side quests are like she fi she finds rare books and then she goes on like fact finding missions where she does research and like she's a proper like nerd, and it's yeah, great. Very much my vibe. Absolutely, my personal rare blade I think is probably <laughs> probably Gorg. 
which is uh. the stupidest name. And he's kind of like a merman aviator. Okay. And he wears like... Best of both worlds. Yeah, it's amazing. He wears like pilot goggles, but also has fins. And like his niche skill is he is incredibly good at making cake. Okay, right. So, like, he kind of ends up... You take up... him on, like, a baking journey or something? Yeah, you literally right. do. Where, like, he ends up... Like, well, it starts off in what you think is going to be one of those kind of unassuming side quests where, like, you encounter a character and it's all like, oh, yes, yeah, so my day job is this, but, like, such and such other obscure hobby is my passion. And then it becomes apparent that Gorg <laughs> is, like, mad keen on baking. Um, and then he ends up, like, kind of taking ownership of a cake shop in one of the towns. And then you have to spend ages refining all of his cake recipes. And that's how you level up his baking <laughs> skills. And then, like, the benefit from that is that instead of, like, going to the shop, you literally can just, like... Oh, yeah, they've got, like, a million different kinds of merchants in it. And they all sell, like... It's all very confusing. Yeah, there are so but... many different shops. You've got, like, the meat shops and the vegetable shop and the bread shop and the fish shop. And then they have, like... Oh, yeah, and the cake shop. And then they have, like, art and antiques and, like, accessories and stuff like that. And all of musical these give you... Musical instruments. Yeah, and just just carrying these around in your pouch imparts some of their power. But then there's, like, this other whole level where, like, you need to determine what item is your blade's favorite item and then they'll get excited about it and then they might learn a new skill yes keep giving them their favorite items yeah (laughs) and there is one rare blade who is just like his entire personality is that he is incredibly food obsessed and if you unlock all of his skills he tells you what everybody else's favorite food is oh cheat awesome (laughs) yeah which is really good Uh, except he's basically just like a sphere with a head like, okay. yeah, some of the character design is just ridiculous. And I haven't yet unlocked the rare blade that everybody has really gone nuts about, which is the kind of snow rabbit one with the giant rack. Okay, yeah. yeah. Like, this is the the one where everybody was just like, really, Santa Blade Chronicles? Like, I, I, I heard that <laughs> the there insane was... insane anatomy. I've yeah. Seen, I've seen the picture of, like, her hips and the way her back just bends. Yeah, I think yeah. somebody described it as, like, a Yoshi with an extra human head on top. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, no, that's, like... A very accurate description. Mm. Um, but yeah, I knew that there was going to be a lot of hot pants and a lot of ridiculous outfits and a mm. lot of cleavage shots. But it's just kind of like, it, it really does go beyond. You got Cosmos? No. Uh, I want to yeah. get Cosmos. Cosmos um, is extremely rare. I, like, I don't have much fondness for Cosmos. I know a lot of people do, but... I just kind of want to see what they do with her in this game because she's such a stupid character. Yes. It's like a sexy robot in lingerie who has the soul of Mary Magdalene. Yeah, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Xenosaga games were super bad. I yeah. Mean, that's, that's my opinion. But yeah. I, yeah, those games kind of broke my brain. When yeah, I, I can understand that. But yeah, uh, it is not a game which is short on sexy robots, I will say that. Yeah, uh, it sure is. It's it's kind of reclaiming that crown. Yeah, and I, like you literally kind of fairly early on, you get a party member who has built his own robot and has like a secret stash of French-made outfits in his wardrobe. And everybody yeah. is like, so what's the deal with this? And he was like, oh, those aren't mine. <laughs> P- Poppy, the, uh, the extremely servile... Uh, no pawn robot. Yeah, yeah, I was not expecting to like Tora as a character as much as I ended up liking him. I generally kind of like the no pawn characters. Yeah, I have games. a lot of time for them. Like they're, you know, it's like they're cute. It's like yeah, they're novelty characters, but they also kind of like they tend to have a lot more character depth than people attribute to them. Um, and I remember kind of 
they do kind of load Tora up with backstory quite early on because they're all like, okay, so this is fine. So like you're you're building your own French made robot warrior <laughs> woman, which is fine and cool. But why? And he's all like, oh yeah, because like my grandfather got murdered by assassins and they kidnapped my father and I want a quest to find him. And you're like, wow, that's deep. Like that's actually a really good reason to build your own French made robot warrior. Like I- I'm done with this. And then like you and you you track his father down in like an old factory and like it gets like. It, there's some very you, you emotional need a whole suite of there. other like ro- French-made robots. Yeah, know? you do, including yeah, one the... who is like 50 feet tall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like it turns out that it's a huge thing. And I think at that point, because it's pre- it's a little O Japan, but <laughs> it is. But it, it feels like it knows it is, and uh. all of your other characters are just like Tora. This French-made robot warrior situation is getting ridiculous, and he's just like, uh. <laughs> so like, and it very much kind of, and that's one of the things I like about Nia as a character is she like very much they'll be in the middle of like the most overtly jrpg cutscene like you've ever seen in your life and she'll just be like oh this is bullshit yeah and, like in like every single cutscene her intonation and her personality are pretty perfect they are great um and i love that they made her welsh <laughs> yeah because apparently like her name is near in japanese but like near is an actual welsh name okay so it's just right. kind of like okay so like we're running with the our game was voiced by british people kind of by accident but we're going to make that our thing now so as i say like you've got like all of the everybody in the the gourmet island is welsh and then you've got like the Urian kingdom and everyone there is australian and then the the ardanians are all scottish and they're like the military imperialist scottish people <laughs> and you're just kind of like oh, okay this is this is cool i like this this is fine but oh man like i think i'd heard very mixed things about the voice acting but i generally have a lot of time for daft voice acting mm-hmm. um because like you know it's games yeah yeah I thought that I was going to switch over to that Japanese language patch, and I haven't. Yeah, I don't I think I will. I absolutely haven't. It I've, is... I've gotten used to it now. Yeah, and there's just so many things, like, where you, you turn up in, like, in Gormot, and it's like, everybody is Welsh, even though they're all so cat people who live on the back of a giant dragon, and it's like, <laughs> okay. Um, and then there's a bit where, like, there's just some guy shows up, and he's like, I want to join the army, move over, boyo, and you're just like, this is literally just, like, a Welsh cat people village, and that's what this is, and it starts to make its own kind of weird sense. Yeah, um, it it has a lot of character in a way that, like, um, there's a lot of people complain about the first Xenoblade uh, for having the uh, British voice actors, and then when Xenoblade X came out and it just had like the standard anime voice actors, everybody was like, "Well, what happened here?" Yeah, <laughs> so it was like you can't please anybody, and now I think that. Although that there was a lot of complaining about the voice acting in Xenoblade 2 initially, I think maybe, maybe it's just my interpretation, but it kind of seems like people have come more around on it, and it's like, yeah, that's what this, that's what this game is in English now. Definitely, and it's like, it gives it so much character, like, in terms of being, this is the definitive Xenoblade 2 English language experience, <laughs> and you know, you, you know where you are with it. It's great, and it's just it's the so way apart they... from all the other JRPGs. It really is, and I know, kind of like there's a couple of characters like Pyra. It's kind of a sort of generic, kind of mid-Atlantic damsel in distress kind of voice acting sort of style, and it's like, and she's very well voiced. But then you've just got mm. like random Welsh cat people, 
and it's just like i was not expecting this from this game yeah because and especially because like visually and in terms of a lot of the tropes like it's so japanese like to an almost like i'm making fun of myself kind of extent and then it's just like but everyone is welsh now <laughs> and it's great and it kind of in a weird way it kind of gave it an element of being more universal than i think it would have been otherwise because if they just kind of gone out with sort of very generic kind of english translation stuff and i think it would have been just kind of like this is the most like over the top jrpg experience imaginable and mm. it's just like and it very much put me in mind of like all of the most absurd bits of like final fantasy 8 and 9 and stuff mm -hmm. like that um is it's just that level of like oh yeah empire in peril and like magical girl who is being hunted by various terrorist groups Mm. and like also cat people and like just general kind of insane cut scenes and i was just kind of like this is such like if i had to explain to somebody who had never played a jrpg like all of the kind of genre tropes that i would just be like it it's this mm -hmm. um in a lot of ways in terms of like the storyline and characters but then it just kind of the voice acting kind of takes it out of that context and makes you realize kind of how much more there is going on hmm. because i think um it would have been quite easy for me to go like oh yeah this is just a lot of kind of final fantasy type stuff that they're doing but then it's just kind of like the voice acting just kind of makes you feel like actually yeah no, there is a genuine element of like peril and like impending ecological doom and like morality going on here hmm. that i probably would have glossed over or gone like oh yeah it's more like late era final fantasy type ridiculousness if yeah. it hadn't been for the voice acting so that kind of it added a new level of depth to it that i really liked i yeah i kind of tend to switch off these days when i hear like the usual jrpg voice actors yeah because like it's like okay well i've seen this story many times and yet i just keep coming back because i like these games even though they're all so similar yes but um yeah i think that that bizarre not quite fitting presentation yeah um is works a lot in its favor and definitely it's made me have a lot more time for this game than yeah. i normally would the plot of Xenoblade 2 does completely go off on one in the later chapters though mm -hmm. like not in a bad way but like i'm not sure how far you've got but it's just kind of like yeah it, I've heard it that goes it ties insane into its prequel in unexpected ways it does yeah. like there's a lot of stuff there and it's like then chapter 10 opens with like some past alternate universe backstory and you're just like okay right that's a lot more things than i was expecting for the storyline but mm. like for some reason like i never really kind of questioned that that was what they were doing i was like okay fair enough i guess like <laughs> now we're getting this like 15 minute cut scene about how the universe was created and i'm fine with that okay right right yeah but it's very much kind of that level of large high concept nonsense uh -huh. um that's what that director is known for yeah definitely it, it very much delivers on on that front i would say yeah i was um yeah i was enticed to hear that that was included because although I think those games, I think the Xeno games, although they get, they do get pretty pretentious and bogged down. Um, there's something that I really like about that anyway. And yes. It feels like here's a bunch of like lofty ambition that is maybe a little bit overbloated and like maybe in terms of a traditional story doesn't quite work, but it's pulled <coughs> off with a level of, um, I guess confidence. Yes. Um, 
even when everything is just kind of like falling down and not making a whole lot of sense, um, it, it presents itself in such a confident way that um, you're like, okay, yeah, let's let's just go with this. And that that you is know? pretty much exactly what I would say of the Bayonetta games as well. Oh yeah, yeah, like the like I without revealing too much about Chapter Ten of Xenoblade Two, um, it very much reminded me of towards the end of the first Bayonetta game where it's like I'm 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 jumping through space and punching a god into the sun right and that that's what i'm doing now and by the time you get to that point in the game you're just like okay i'm punching a god <laughs> into the sun that's cool that's the logical end point of this story that they've set up here and i'm fine with that uh, yeah i think like with bayonetta especially you just kind of have to drift along to the ride Definitely. i think they're a very interesting pair of games absolutely um, that don't really make a lot of sense they but... really don't and like i remember but they're so stylish yeah i like they look amazing um i hadn't really played the first one um or the second one on any other platforms um before because i never owned a wii u or anything like that mm -hmm. um so i was kind of vaguely aware of them but i'd never played them um and i got them because like they kept being recommended to me but like everybody i i was like i knew that everybody had said they were silly but i was just like it was so much sillier than I was anticipating. It knows how silly it is. Oh, it, it absolutely yeah. does. Um, and the fact that the second one just kind of builds on top of the silliness of the first one, but like more so. Um, yeah, even going into it, knowing what a daft gaming experience they're generally held up to be, I was still blown away by the, the sheer level of ridiculousness that there is in mm. the Bayonetta games. Um, but they're great. But... Uh, I very much kind of take the same approach that I do with most fighting games, with the exception for some reason of Super Smash Brothers, which, like, is the only game that I've sat down and learned how to play properly in terms mm. of doing all the combos properly and stuff. Um, I think because that one I started playing on the N64 and it had all of the training levels where you have to, like, use your combo moves to, like, get around corners and stuff like that. So that yeah. very much kind of, in order to unlock all of the characters, it kind of forces you to get good at, like, learning the moves and stuff like that. Um, every other fighting game I've ever played, I pretty much literally just button mash. Mm -hmm. um, starting from, the first fighting game that I ever played was Mortal Kombat Trilogy yeah. on the N64, uh, which kind of... When you're playing against the computer, it kind of isn't very forgiving for button mashing. So when you're doing the kind of quest stuff, it's just kind of like you can completely ace the first three levels and then suddenly you have to fight a guy who's got some very specific moves and you're like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. But when you're playing against a human being, you can just thrash them very easily by just going beep, 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 and just like <laughs> kicking them in the face like 10 times in a row. There's a, there's a kind of a specific like deliberation in the moves of Mortal Kombat. Yes. If I'm, if I'm remembering. I remember it feels like you kind of have to commit a little bit more than you did in something like Street Fighter or King of Fighters. Yeah, Street Fighter is kind of another one where, like, you really can get a lot of mileage out of just punching people in the face repeatedly, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, Mortal Kombat, my strategy was always to pick a character who had, like, one really impressive combo and just use that. Like, there was one of those kind of, like, one of the ninja women who had, like a stick or a pair of fans and the mm. like blades and there was this one who would like impale people and then turn them upside down and then like stomp on their face and stuff like that <laughs> so i would just break out like that one combo and i figured out that like if i timed it exactly right then whoever i was fighting couldn't break out of it because i would then just instantly launch into the same combo again and for some reason it never got boring just like <laughs> impaling people to death with like a backflip 20 times and that was the that was the game <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and you, you'd think that I would have like felt compelled to find another fighting style, but for some reason, like that one was just like, why, why would I need to do that when I win every match against everybody that I play at Mortal Kombat Trilogy? I could just backflip them to death. <laughs> like it works. <laughs> having these horrible flashbacks of playing Street Fighter Two against the AI and. Uh, Ryu was just like knocking me down with fireballs and then oh, setting yeah. up the next fireball so it would hit me as soon as I got up and it was just like endless fireballs. It was terrible AI. Yeah. But I guess maybe it was actually kind of accurate to Definitely. Uh, <laughs> to what another player would be like. I once genuinely annoyed my aforementioned friend Joe when I played him at Super Smash Bros. on the N64 because uh, yeah, we we spent the summer when we were in sixth form we were just like we're going to unlock every unlockable character and we just got Captain Falcon and he was really jazzed about Captain Falcon so he was Captain Falcon and I was Pikachu because I'm always Pikachu because I really love the projectile lightning mm -hmm. and like basically I was like I managed to knock him off the side of like the Kirby stage or something like that and then I just kept hitting him with projectile lightning every time he tried to climb back up so he could never get back onto the stage oh, and he was just, yeah. just like that's not in the spirit of the game and I was just kind of like but the game mechanic allows you to do it so I think it's valid uh, and that was I I think probably the most strained that our friendship has ever been was when I beat him at Super Smash Brothers when he was Captain Falcon and I was Pikachu because <laughs> I had the projectile lightning and I was like oh yeah sorry just because you can only do melee combat and I can hit you from like over there <laughs> I was very pleasantly surprised by how much fun it was to play as Jigglypuff in that game. Oh, Jigglypuff's adorable. Yeah, Jigglypuff is really good. I can, I can, I've got a lot of time for Jigglypuff. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a lot of time for Jigglypuff in uh, all the games in which Jigglypuff shows up in. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very excited that we're getting a new Pokemon RPG for the Switch. Apparently that's going to be a thing that happens. Yeah, I'm wondering how far out that will be. But, yeah. Um, yeah, they haven't really done like a proper home console version. I mean, there, there were a couple of GameCube games that I never played that had kind of middling reception yeah because they weren't quite they weren't quite what the handheld games were doing yeah but i guess with that extra m mobility that the switch has it's a pretty logical definitely logical conclusion yeah and we, we did get another um i say another like um what were the sun and moon re-releases i can't even remember what they I called them ultra sun and ultra moon i think oh yeah so yeah. i got pokemon sun and then i got pokemon ultra moon and it was kind of just like the same but more so mm -hmm. and there was more kind of like absurd storyline stuff and i was just kind of like this is a bit overwhelming but i just want to watch mm. monsters fight each other because it's <laughs> adorable and funny um but yeah i really like the overworld of that one that was a lot of fun to explore uh yeah it's, it's got a that kind of nice hawaiian setting right yeah yeah um the first kind of the first Pokemon game that I actually got really into was uh, when I played X and Y, mm -hmm. um, because before that it was like I played um, I played Red and Blue um, on the Game Boy, uh, yeah. and it was like I thought they were okay. Um, in you know I had I had fun because like I remember like Pokemon was huge at that time, so I was just kind of like yeah I'll play Red and Blue it'll be a laugh, and it was like this is fun, but I wouldn't say that I'm like completely obsessed with it. So I missed all of the interim ones like. Um, it did like gold and silver and they did uh, like pearl and diamond and stuff like that so all of those completely passed me by until I played X and Y and then I realised mm. actually like that one I got really into um, and again that was another one with a, a large overworld which is like you've got that was the one which was like the Parisian one 
Yeah. And you go to the capital city and they've got this tower and you they've got like a million shops and you like going into every shop would take you like two days of solid gameplay mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And for some reason I think it was something about how impressive the graphics were for a handheld at that point because they look really crisp and clean yeah they look really good um because before that i think probably i wouldn't have been so excited about the pokemon games on game boy if it hadn't been for the anime mm-hmm. because then it's like so i know all of these characters and i know that they're adorable and hilarious so it's kind of like when you catch a jigglypuff you have you have an image in your mind of what your ideal jigglypuff looks like but it's the one from the anime not from the game because mm. the game it's just just like a kind of indistinct blob which like if i recall correctly wasn't even in color yeah so it's like right. yeah so i got very excited about it i think more because of the anime than because of the game because my my brother at the time was completely obsessed with the the pokemon show and it was just constantly on in our house um so kind of playing the games at the time kind of felt like a slightly more low-key version of watching the show mm-hmm. um whereas i think for me x and y were the first ones that i played that felt as absorbing as the show was mm. i think because they looked so great and there was just like a ridiculous number of new pokemon like it was completely absurd um and then like but then it was like you catch a Jigglypuff and it looks like the Jigglypuff that you imagine <laughs> instead of just like it's a kind of, of a, a, yeah. a grainy kind of round guy. Like, yeah. you know, you catch one and it's like, hey, this, this, is, this is exactly what I want out of my, <laughs> uh, my fairy type Pokemon and stuff like that. So that felt kind of, it brought together all of the things that people liked about the Pokemon universe into one experience rather than like, so you've got the anime, which is visually like very distinctive and very colorful and you've got the games which are all black and white and kind of like don't really look that much like what you would imagine the pokemon universe to look like mm-hmm. like not that the story was great and you know the and the battle mechanics were great but it's such a it was such a kind of the whole concept relies on being so visually distinctive because it's like mm-hmm. yeah i've got like literal hundreds of monsters that i'm gonna catch and make fight each other and Mm -hmm. then it's just kind of like you know i want this to be exciting and i want this to look amazing because i'm making monsters fight each other it should look really cool (laughs) so they never quite looked as fun as they were mechanics wise i think yeah it was like the marketing was more realized than what it was marketing i suppose yeah but yeah x and y completely just kind Mm. of like they actually looked as exciting as they were Hmm. Uh, which to me was great um but i remember when uh there were so many jokes on the internet about the number of new pokemon that there were because it was ridiculous um yeah i'm not even sure how many there are anymore i know yeah. it's like several hundred it's, it's pushing like 700 now yeah, I think. I was, like uh... yeah it's it's large um and oh, this probably isn't going to make any sense it's going to have to be cut from your podcast for not making any sense um but I like it's so let's, let's give it a go okay so like um I was completely destroyed and I can't remember who it was by otherwise I would find it and credit them but um, there was a cartoon doing the rounds a while ago where somebody just drew a bunch of like joke versions of new Pokemon and there was like a B that was called B and then there was a really long B that was called B with many E's and it was just like their version of what the new Pokemon was like and I was just like that's very accurate actually and so like so many of them are just like you had like the, the i can't remember which of the games it is i think it, i think it is sun and moon um where it's like you go into the haunted abandoned supermarket and the boss is like 
one of the Pokemon which is like a ghost Pikachu that, that hides really under a paper Pikachu bag. One? Yeah. yeah, and it hides yeah, under yeah. a paper bag, and then you've got like the the evil pumpkin, um, and like the ghost lantern and stuff like that. Yeah, the ghost oh, lantern I might have was to great. Give this a go yeah, I can't that. remember the name yeah. of like the ghost. Like, it evolves from a ghost candle into like a ghost chandelier type thing uh-huh. um and i remember i can't remember what it's called but that was one of the characters that showed up in uh pocket tournament which i played a little bit mm-hmm. uh which was fun but they had a lot of very similar pokemon with similar ish battle mechanics so there were a lot of like third evolution of your fire starter pokemon yeah. in it that all had like flamethrowers so it felt kind of repetitive it sounds like they didn't have the faith in making like a more avant-garde fighting game yeah just went with like the more obvious types of characters that you could you know translate to that format of yeah game, and it's like wow that that's a lot of flamethrower like yeah. you know <laughs> I, I would have liked to see them do more stuff with it um but again my favorite thing about that was like the thing that made me realize how ridiculous Pokémon Tournament was was like somebody posted a screenshot of it, which was like Blaziken, which was like the fire chicken was fighting the ghost candelabra in one of the levels, which was like a cityscape with like cars in the background, mm. and somebody <laughs> just put tag yourself. I'm the guy in the blue car who's late for work because this chicken is fighting a candelabra in the road. <laughs> and I was like, that's it. That's the game. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like, I wish that they'd done more with the pocket tournament concept, but like, I was just like, I'm not really sure that I can justify spending £45 on, like, a chicken fighting a candelabra in the middle of the street. Hilarious though that is. That's pretty good. I mean, like, if there was a Magikarp in there, then, I mean, I don't know if there is. Maybe there is. Um, I think there's a, I can never remember how to pronounce the whatever the insane evolved version Gy- gyrodos 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 yeah, yeah the yeah. giant dragon guy yeah, yeah I, th- I think there's one of those okay um but yeah it's like, not quite as good yeah like it was a good laugh but it was like again that was one where i played at my, at my friend's house i was like i don't think i would spend money on this mm-hmm. um but yeah things being a laugh like i get a surprising amount of mileage out of even if the game itself is not that thrilling um mm-hmm. Which I think the best example of is Tomodachi Life just absolutely destroyed me. Like, there's so little to do in terms of actual gaming stuff. (laughs) It's just like... It seemed like there was some mileage out of that one. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is stuff you can do. Like, yeah, I I had it and I got really into it. And it's like, so I, I kind of like... A lot of the leveling up you do, you kind of do by accident. Mm. Uh, So kind of... The hilarity factor is very much kind of what kept me going back to it. So it's like kind of I'd go in and I'd check in on like my tiny self and like my friends and some other like random famous people that I put in my apartment block. Um, and so kind of I didn't really have a sense with it of the fact that I was building up to any kind of achievement. Yeah. I would just be kind of like, oh, I'm going to like put a stupid hat on myself and laugh at it. Mm hmm but then like it's like a it struck me as like a weird sims yeah instead of like you know managing your household you were more just you know getting into silly situations literally yeah um but then it would be like i've put you've put 10 silly hats on yourself you've unlocked a thing and i was like <laughs> wow i didn't even know i was working towards this achievement and i guess i am now but yeah. like the number of like just completely sometimes if you check in on somebody and they're asleep you can eavesdrop on their dream 
Okay. Uh, and there's also the, the That's news. a little nightmarish. Yeah. That's the, cool. There's the news channel um, where uh, one of my friends, well, I say one of my friends in the Tom and Ashley Life universe got on the news because a hawk stole his risotto. <laughs> and then they interviewed him about it. Just like it. out of his hands? Yeah. yeah. It, apparently he was on the beach when a hawk stole his risotto. So the, the news anchor interviewed him about it and he said, this is the third time a hawk has stolen my risotto. So I'm kind of used to it now. <laughs> That's the kind of like weird non sequitur Nintendo humor that I that I like. That yeah, I really definitely. With. So kind of all of my achievements in that game were done by accident because I just wanted to see what stupid stuff was going on. But that's another really good one that you can you can make songs out of. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of you can teach everybody a song which is in one of various styles so they have the techno song and the heavy metal song and the opera song and the pop song Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth and everybody who you've taught a song to like as long as they know the same song they can form a band and perform it in the concert hall but you can change the words and they text to speech the words so you can make them sing literally anything you want oh hell yeah there is a lot of fun to be had with this oh i'm whoa i'm down with that yeah Yeah. so so that's good um (laughs) but yeah i i like i wasn't even aware of tomodashi live as a thing until like i went to visit one of my friends um who is the aforementioned biggest nintendo fanboy that i know um and he just answered the door and we just had like tears coursing down his face and i was like what's the matter and he just showed me like some song that he made his characters sing in tomodashi live and i was like i can't believe you can make your tiny guys sing anything you want um, but yeah, and the whole relationship mechanic in it is just kind of like, this is weird, but it's also really funny. Mm-hmm. So it's like, sometimes like your characters marry each other and then they have kids and the kids are always kind of automatically generated depending on what features like you've given to each of their parents. So you end up with some very fucked up looking children <laughs> and then you can either like let them stay on the island or they can go off and be explorers and then they like street pass other people's islands and they occasionally send you postcards and stuff like that. And it's all a bit clunky and adorable. Um, but then got loads of stuff like i tried to set jeremy corbyn up with grace jones on my island oh wow because they lived next door to each other in my apartment block um and like she asked jeremy corbyn out but jeremy corbyn wasn't really interested because he just wanted to go on the beach with his metal detector and i was like that actually feels quite true to life (laughs) (laughs) he's got stuff to find yeah and when when your Tomodachi live characters like start resembling the people who they're based on like I moved all of my bandmates into my apartment block and like I gave my guitarist Chuao a guitar and like the first thing he did was just go and sit by the fountain by himself playing the guitar and just nodding his head and going like oh yeah I'm playing my guitar and it's just it's kind of like for some reason I have a lot of mileage for that even though there's no real kind of end goal beyond seeing what other hilarious scrapes people get into yeah there's um i think there's like an inherent sweetness to that definitely um one that you can yeah i guess not think too much about and hmm, i'm not sure what i'm trying to say um it's like this mix of of dynamism and authored content definitely that that allows for yeah that allows for sort of like an uncanny cuteness yes mm. uncanny cuteness is exactly <laughs> the tomatashi live vibe um i am really excited about metopia which i have not played yeah yeah that's sort of the yeah like logical conclusion is that right yeah um 
I wasn't sure how much I was going to enjoy Tom and Dashie Life because I was like, oh, you know, how hilarious can it be? Like getting people who are tiny to just avatars of yourself and other people that you know to live on an island and do stuff. But it turned out to be so hilarious. And I was mm. just like, yeah, I want more of this. So at some point I'm going to get around to playing Metopia and mm. I'm excited about this. Yeah. I, uh, it's all right. He won't bite you. No, no, no. I think he's just, <laughs> he's just a little, little, little spooked guy. There, there's, a, there's a cat here. Sorry, I have been distracted by cat. He's yeah. a, a, a very soft cat. That's okay. He is, yeah. he is super soft. Yeah. He's a super soft boy. Yeah. Um, is there a particular game that you feel like that connects with you on like a personal level? Oh, man. Uh, there's a few, but probably yeah. the Lay big on one. Me. Probably the big one for me is Link's Awakening. Okay, this yeah. one, this has kept coming up in the past few episodes as well. I think yeah. everybody feels super strongly about Link's Awakening. Yeah. Myself included. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that is kind of context because, um, like, I always was a big fan of the 3D Zelda games, but I hadn't really played that many of the handheld ones before mm. beyond, like, um, is it Link to the Past? Or is that, is that that was on Super Link? Nintendo. Yeah, so I, I, I think I, it got a re-release. Yeah, I, I played I played that a little bit, um, but I hadn't really played any of the Game Boy ones. Like I remembered them happening, but they just kind of passed me by a bit. There was a big gap between them. There was there Link's really Awakening, was. and then like I want to say like six or seven years later were those Oracle games. Yeah, the Oracle games turned out to be great. Yeah, like, I, I played. They those. were weird. They they were, uh, but yeah, like Oracle of Ages is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Um, but yeah, so um, I think a big part of my affection for Link's Awakening uh, was partly because like, I first started playing it uh, when it was like, I was just in a very kind of depressed place and like I'd broken up with my boyfriend that I had been with through all of university and like didn't really know what I was going to do career-wise because I just left uni and I was all like, oh, I don't know what to do with my life. And just generally kind of was just stressing out about everything and eventually like my mum and dad would just like come and stay with us for Christmas so I went to stay with my mum and dad for Christmas while I like and I went to see my doctor and adjusted to being on my new brain meds which I'm still on now and are great so you mm. know big shout out for sertraline it is a very good good thing that fixed my brain but at the time I was just kind of like oh but what if I'm never going to be any good at doing stuff um, I and, ask myself that question every day yeah I, I, I've, <laughs> I've got a lot better at uh, actually having answers to that question but at the time I didn't really have a lot to kind of come back to um so um it was like christmas holidays and like i was working in an art gallery at the time uh in the barbican center and like we just finished the bauhaus exhibition which was really colorful and i loved it and that was kind of like a good escapist thing for me to show up to work and it was like yay i'm living in the world of art <laughs> and then uh the show that was on after that was like a very worthy photography exhibition and they just had loads of stuff from like south african apartheid and i and there are no windows there so basically my day job was just to go and like sit in a room with no natural light and like spend a lot of time reading captions about like the great political injustices of the 20th century and i was just kind of like this is a bit heavy going uh -huh, so yeah. like that was basically my life so i went back to stay with my mom and dad um and like i got my new meds and i was just kind of like okay i'm gonna like take some time to just kind of try and get my brain in order um and one of the things that i did during that time was i played Link's awakening for the first time um and that just completely like hit on the bit of my brain that 
needed it i think because i was just Mm. like yes and i ended up just kind of and like one of the things that i like about link is he's just such a kind of in a lot of ways he's a really generic guy Mm -hmm. like he's the hero of time and all that but you don't really know much about yeah exactly and like i'd always named my player characters after myself Mm -hmm. which is particularly hilarious and stuff like ocarina of time where it's like you meet the descendant of the Goron chief and he's like wow my name is Seb I was named after Seb the legendary hero Seb is such a cool name so like (laughs) I've always done that wherever I get to name a player character I'm like yeah I'm gonna name him after myself um but this is the one where like basically kind of I was talking to someone about it and I was just kind of like so with all of the Zelda games it's like you've got your really light-hearted ones like the like spirit tracks and like phantom hourglass which i mm. really like the, the ds zelda games did not get enough love because they are very good it was the stylus controls that put me off those yeah i really wanted to play them but i really wanted to play them with the d-pad yeah so that was just that was just me being stubborn really. yeah it, it uh, took me a while to get used to but once i got the hang of the stylus controls i became a big fan mm-hmm. uh, so you've got those that kind of the, like the wind waker kind of cutesy timeline at one end and then you've got like the majora's mask kind of like deep and serious kind of like the other end of the seriousness spectrum so i was like okay so where does link's awakening fall in terms of like the seriousness spectrum he was like oh it's well into the light-hearted end yeah so i played it and it's just kind of like this doesn't even make any other references to the whole zelda universe it's literally just you've woken up on a desert island and you have no clue what you're doing (laughs) so i very much was just like yes in many ways i have woken up on a desert island and i have no idea (laughs) what i'm doing um and And here's some bouncy music to help you on your way yeah bouncy music references to like the mario game it's like there's a bit where a guy eats a mushroom and then thinks that he's a raccoon and yeah. he like hallucinates and he wakes back up in the village like well i was tripping balls i don't know what's going on <laughs> and you've got like your item trading side quest where like you have to give a hair ribbon to like uh what are those you like the chain a chain chomp, chomp. yeah you? the chain yeah. chomp dog yeah um and i it just really struck a chord with me and again that was another one of the ones where like it took me a long time to get used to playing a zelda game in 2d because i Mm. never really had before so i was just kind of like it took me a while to get used to its whole kind of visual language in terms of interacting with the overworld and sort of stuff like that but then once i got the hang of it i got so into it and like every so often like an owl would show up and just say encouraging things and it'd be like ah Seb I see you are on your quest don't give up and I was just kind of like thanks encouraging owl and it was just such a, a fun cheering experience in its own like really absorbing little world so like that felt like yeah it was just a really positive experience in terms of just being the game that I needed at that time just to kind of cheer me up i guess and it, it yeah. really did so i still think of that as kind of the game that sort of i was just kind of feeling very disaffected with everything and then i played link's awakening and i was just kind of like maybe all i needed was some encouragement from an owl <laughs> <laughs> the thing that i like the most about link's awakening and what sets it really sets it apart from those other 2d zelda games um i seem to remember reading that the team were really inspired by twin peaks yeah, game in particular. Yeah, there's there's a very strong the owls are not what they seem for yeah. going on. Definitely. But, like whereas um, in Link to the Past, like you had you had the you had the Hyrule Town, which um, 
it didn't have a whole lot of character and eventually it stopped mattering when you were going into the dark world and you know just having to do dungeon after dungeon yeah i felt in link's awakening like you were always going back to that town and checking in with people yes and everybody was like a distinct character um whether they had i wouldn't quite say motivations i don't think it was that advanced but there was a there was a very big sense of like this this is a town larger than life that's that's alive yeah um and And i think kind of in the long run of things that's probably the first zelda game that kind of really mines that yeah village setting for potential because i'm ocarina of of time runs with it and then majora's mask like takes it to its logical conclusion yeah majora's mask it's like that's the whole game yeah yeah um but link's awakening felt distinctly distinctly special in its characterization definitely limited as it was at the time Mm. and it's also very much kind of like oh am i in some kind of collective hallucination or am i not and it's like it knows that it's silly but it just runs with it and uh, yeah it's just a really good kind of combination of sort of light-heartedness and epic quest stuff Mm. which just like was really pleasing and just really enjoyable it was massive and deep yeah it was yeah and i um, like I'm still amazed at how detailed they made the world, like with the graphics that they had, because it's like there's a definite sense of sense of place and discovery, even if is. you're not playing that uh, Game Boy Color remake. Yeah, and I remember, and I I, did, I played the re-release on on the 3DS actually, which looks really nice, and it was really nice to play it on a backlit screen mm-hmm. as well, because I think that was why I didn't I didn't get very far with it at the time was just the kind of general dimness felt like I wasn't really appreciating like the level of detail that there was. Yeah. So it was like when I started off, it was like I had a kind of a base level of knowledge that like oh yeah so this is a field and there's trees and stuff like that but when i started off it felt like i i kind of was seeing what it represented rather than how visually detailed it was but then the further you get into it you're like actually this landscape is really well realized you've got like forests and there's a mountain and like waterfalls and stuff like that yeah and you end up feeling that like you've got like this 16-bit color palette but like you've just got this world and it's like wow there's, there's a giant waterfall and i can raft yeah. on it and like um, there's the mermaid pond and taking the chain chomp to eat those plants to yes into the second dungeon yes yeah. um and yeah as, as it progressed i realized like how impressive the setting was um, and again it's something that i've always found very encouraging about when you start off in a landscape which is inhospitable and then it becomes something that you conquer and it's like you go back to the same stuff and it's like actually that's not that scary mm-hmm. um and i think kind of i traditionally put that down to when i was a child i had terrible anxiety and massive agoraphobia and it was just kind of like oh no i've got to go to the supermarket and it'll be really sensory overwhelming and i won't like it mm-hmm. um and so i've always kind of just found it really inspiring to be like yes my tiny little digital avatar guy has started off in this like very inhospitable landscape and like all of the characters are just like what are you doing here new guy in town and then by the end (laughs) of the game it's like thank you for saving our entire world you're conquering your demons little by little exactly and each each step matters yeah and i think the zelda games are very kind of they're very upfront about the fact that you start off as just some guy and then you kind of you become the legendary hero as you go along and it it it, it feels like a big achievement hmm Hmm. no i would agree with that yeah even when the actual kind of difficulty curve of the game like hasn't been that difficult like i remember kind of the big moment in ocarina of time it's just like all you have to do is put the sword on a pedestal like you just uh, you <laughs> press b and then you travel through time and like that feels like the hugest deal ever and it's like <laughs> wow it's not even like i just had some epic battle or something i literally just like 
put this sword on this pedestal and now suddenly it's the future and, and i have to save the shit. universe yeah. yeah and it like it, it feels like such a big deal for such a tiny action and i think yeah the zelda games they make the biggest deal out of some of the smallest things that i can think of in a really good way hmm. plus ocarina of time did have a very good fishing game yeah it did didn't yeah it? it really did except for some reason like i could never catch any of the really large fish in it like i got a lot of the really small fish and a lot of the medium-sized fish and like every so often i'd like i'd try and catch what i thought was the biggest fish in the whole pond and then i'd take it to the guy and he'd be like mm, yes let me see this is a 10 pound fish i think you can catch bigger than that and i was just like i spent an hour on this you. man yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah that that guy is harsh my absolute favorite kind of fishing mechanic that i've seen recently is in super mario odyssey when um what's the little guy who rides around on his cloud with the fishing rod? Uh, lakitu yeah. yeah so like he's fishing in the pond and he's got he's got his little fishing song like oh it's time for fishing all the live long day <laughs> and then you throw your your hat at him which is inhabited by a magical spirit and then you possess his brain and like force him to fish for you for, yeah you, you you force him to do your fishing for you um and then uh so that so that's really fun but then it's like then you you leave inhabiting his brain and he just goes kind of whoa what went on there and just kind of trips out for like three seconds and he goes oh well back to fishing and he just carries on fishing best to not think too hard about it yeah it's, it's great and like oh man yeah there's so many hilarious moments in super mario odyssey that i love yeah sure why not your your hat is a magical hat spirit that can possess anything that you throw it at that's <laughs> just as a central mechanic it's like on paper it's like this is nonsense but then when you're playing it you're like this is amazing i'm a frog i can jump the height of a building oh yes another thing i really like about it is i i as i have mentioned i'm a big fan of any kind of desert level mm -hmm. but obviously traditionally like they do the whole ancient egypt kind of pyramid hieroglyphics kind of aesthetic for desert levels this one has a mexican desert yeah which is really pleasing and it's got these kind of little sugar skull day of the dead kind of little poncho dudes and like they let you in their club if you wear a poncho and they let you play guitar with them and it's just kind of really nice and pleasing and like visually it's very nice um but the boss of that level is like a very angry kind of ancient mayan statue and you have to possess one of his fists and force him to punch his own face yeah, stop hitting yourself stop hitting Literally. yourself <laughs> and yeah. the look the like the expression that he gets when he realizes that he's not in control of his own fist and he just kind of retreats from it going like no don't punch me with my own hands it's like that it's like that gif that's been going around of andre the giant looking very upset yeah it really is and like i i struggled to finish that boss fight just because i was laughing so much at like how much he was freaking out by being made to punch his own face like just as as a as a boss fight concept i was just like this is amazing <laughs> that one just cracked me up but yeah i mean that very much kind of it does really nice things with the whole like you've got all of your levels themed around like a particular landscape or a particular setting so mm -hmm. you've got you've got the mexican desert level and then the the ice level is very nice mm -hmm. uh and it's got like the weird bouncing kind of race game which took me ages to get the hang of but mm. is is pleasing uh oh i really like the mermaid lake level that is a very nice underwater yeah, setting that was really good yeah it's a, it's very attractive very shiny 
I got a lot of joy of um, possessing a cheap, cheap fish and then like going into one of the shops and then oh, like, yeah. oh, get out of here. Go yeah. away. <laughs> no, that, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It reminded me kind of, of when you put the masks on in Ocarina of Time. It was that kind of yeah. central mechanic. Or yeah, in Majora's Mask as well, when you wear your different masks and they're all like, oh, get away. <laughs> that is good. Yeah. So yeah, you can be a runaway cheap, cheap fish. Uh, you can be a frog, which is great. You can be uh, a statue's fist. Uh, oh yeah, I had never really seen um, a Mario game do a city kind of level since Super Mario Sunshine. Yeah, so and that's what I was city always. Was... I was always after them doing that again. Yeah, New Donk City is really, really good. It feels like kind of they went back to that and were just like, what? If, what if this? But like a lot more. Yeah, yeah, and it's, and not, it's, it's not just full of enemies either. It's full of things to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, there's just random people who you walk past, and they just chat to you. Like, yeah, I'm just hanging out in my city. It's, I remember loads of people were just kind of like, if the people in New Donk City are like normal humans, and does this make Mario some kind of weird goblin? And I'm like, no, because the people in New Donk City are the New Donkers. Like, they're their own distinct <laughs> race. You know, Mario is your base level of human, and like, these are just they're your... the freaks. Yeah, they're the freaks. <laughs> like, they're the real freaks here. <laughs> and then they have their, their their festival that celebrates the founding of their city which is basically like uh the the 2d game that you play like on the wall of a skyscraper which looks amazing yeah 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 um yeah i was very very impressed with absolutely the, the whole new donk segment because um i had a lot of time for mario sunshine at the time for all of its faults yeah but it you know giving you this this weird kind of tropical town to yes. to run around um yeah, it was something that they didn't really attempt again um, up until Mario Odyssey. And yeah. Things, they went a little bit more like bespoke platformy. Definitely. Uh, in between those two games. Yeah. And maybe it was out of like an anxiety of how poorly Sunshine was received. I mean, I say received poorly, but I'm sure it sold gangbusters at the time. Probably, I liked yeah. it a lot. Yeah, I, I played it a little bit, but I think I need to revisit it. Because, again, I had I had quite a steep kind of learning curve with the GameCube games. Yeah. Uh, like, as I said, with Luigi's Mansion, because it felt a lot like they gave you a gadget. Mm-hmm. That's very much what they did yeah, in Sunshine. which is fine, but yeah. it's kind of like, as a central mechanic, like, they very much kind of, there were a lot of extra mechanics to pick up kind of immediately, mm-hmm. whereas, like, stuff like Super Mario 64 is like, okay, well, I'm a guy in a place, like, what do I do? And you spend such a long time figuring that out, that sort of every time you gain new skills, like, you get the new hats and stuff like that, um, then that feels very intuitive. Um, but again, like, even Luigi's Mansion 2 on the DS, which I love, but I had to play, like, the first few missions, like, a few times just to get to grips with my ghost-sucking vacuum cleaner, because yeah. I was like, this is some very specific controls that they've got going on here. <laughs> so I think, kind of, if I go back to it and, like, spend some time getting to grips with the mechanics, I think Sunshine will probably hold up very well. Mm, I imagine it probably does. Yeah. Um, it has been a long time since I've played it, but, yeah. I... They did do um, a very small kind of Sunshine-themed, like surprise level in the DS port of Super Mario 64. Oh, did they? They did, yeah, okay. which I bought because I was just like, well, yeah, Super Mario 64, like the game that invented my entire sense of self. I'm definitely going to buy that. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm not sure how good this is going to be on a D-pad, but 
Turned out I had a lot of patience for it and it's great. Mm -hmm. And you start off with Yoshi having to rescue Mario because he's been kidnapped by Bowser in the first level. So I was like, okay, they're clearly doing something different here. Yeah, but a, lot a smart of, move. Yeah, a lot of the stuff that was really difficult in the N64 version becomes really easy because you can play as Luigi and he jumps really high. Okay. Yeah, so like right. a lot of the jumps that you'd have to like time exactly right, you're just like, I can jump like two stories in one <laughs> go because I'm Luigi and he can do that because he's less fat. Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> That's always been his thing, the kind of floatier jump. Yeah. If I remember correctly. Definitely. And then but... you've got, like, Wario who just punches stuff. And, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's very well done. And, like, they can all, like, only punch certain blocks or access certain areas. And it very much, like, it could have just felt like a clunkier release of a very good game. But they did some new stuff with it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they, they've got the little kind of sunshine-inspired tropical level, which is, uh, it's nice. It's good. And mm. it's got the, got the cheery music, which I like. Mm-hmm. Mm, that is good. Yeah. I'm a little conscious of the time. Uh, we are coming up to two hours. Oh, wow, um, yeah. That, that's a lot of talking about games that we've, we fit into the time. I think we've had a good one. I think we have. Um, Seb, if people want to check you out on the web, where can people find you? Okay. Uh, do, do you want to share that? Am I jumping the gun here? Uh, no, that's fine. Um, I don't really have a great deal of like public stuff that I do on the internet because I mostly just use it for posting links to mid-80s funk tunes that I've enjoyed and talking about how hungover I am and stuff like that uh but you perform i i do yes uh my band fashion shuriken who are uh okay people keep asking me to describe the sound of fashion shuriken and it's like okay i'm gonna say funk metal but funk metal is already a genre that we don't sound anything like <laughs> uh but yeah we are in the middle of writing our ep uh so there will be more news on that as it happens but we are very much hoping to get that out in the near-ish future and then i will be all over the internet you can guarantee it hell yeah yes uh, have you got any gigs coming up? Uh, do we have any gigs coming up? Uh, not yet. We're we're okay. we're doing our studio time. Like we're we're retreating to our living room to write our masterpiece. But it's going very well. We got five songs now. I think. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. T yeah. Turns out we're quite a good band. Yeah. Pass pass a link my way once you've. Uh, I absolutely will. Up. But yeah, running. in the meantime, the general public have uh, a good two hours worth of my opinions about games to keep keep them going, which is. Uh, a good amount of Seb out for, for the time being, definitely. <laughs> Hell yeah, until next time. Awesome. Um, Seb, thank you very much for joining me today. Ah, thank you for um, inviting me. Yeah, you're always welcome. Awesome. Um, if you want to find us on the web, we are on, well, no, I have, no, you know what? The past few episodes I said I didn't have a Twitter yet. I have registered a Twitter for this show. It's, nice. Uh, at you're my pod y-o-u-r-m-y-p-o-d so give us a follow there i may not have tweeted yet i'm not sure um but you can find uh the podcast itself at misanthropop.com you can leave us an itunes review it would be most mo muchly appreciated not just mostly appreciated very muchly appreciated um but with that um we'll see you next week with another guest thank you again <laughs>